Digital Drift, episode 50, recorded Saturday, 17th of January, 2015, The Legend of Korra, book four, Balance, part one. We're back with a two-part in-depth analysis of what may be the last series ever set in the Four Nations. And it's our 50th, 50th episode, episode, so everybody celebrate. From Extra Credits, animated gaming industry lecturer and highly skilled waterbending mouse monkey, Daniel Floyd. Hello. From the Kane and Rince Serious Video Gaming Review Podcast comes muscular, earthbending animation archivist Joshua Garrity. Hello there. Waterbending gender equalist Sharon Shaw. Hello. Now from Game Burst, Earthbending comic and anime enthusiast and recent expert ninja, Sifu Jerome McIntosh. Good day, sir. And because I never introduced myself, I'm Alex Shaw. Firebender, wordbender, mindbender, and soundbender. Okay, so let's just go straight into it with stuff I forgot from last week. <laughs> How could we not really talk about Bolin and Marco's family? Like, we, we, we talked a bit about Republic City, but I think we were focusing mainly on the difference between it and uh, uh, Zafu. Yeah. yeah. But we didn't really talk about uh, Bolin and Marco's family and their reuniting with it and, then, uh, and the um, uh, assumption that their parents were still alive and uh, their royalist grandma... Yeah. <laughs> and um, as I recall, animation-wise, they uh, I think they reused the same model for um, Zuko and Iroh's room at Ba Sing Se from um, around that era in Earth. I don't think it's supposed to be exactly the same building, though. Is an extra little feeling of um, just that city having not changed yeah. in a long time. Mm. It's just so they've they... layered. There's like more electrical cables kind of strung up over mm-hmm. everything, but there, there's been very little city renovation. Yeah, it's as if the um, upper city, had, they made sure to keep everything in the lower city below, like behind in the past while they advanced upper city. I did honestly think that this might prove uh, like a stepping stone for Bolin and Marco to talk about what happened to them as children, maybe with a flashback. I think that's that's always something that's felt like it was lacking from the series, flashbacks. Um, I mean, sorry. When I say that now, I'm thinking of all the flashbacks. They're <laughs> they're, they're they're there, but they um, they don't go into any great depth with them. Yeah, 
And there's a point where Toph actually says it in this one, you know, sometimes you just got to leave it to the kids. It seems almost like that's answering to people saying, well, what about what happened to Team Aang? It doesn't matter. What about the kids? They're the ones moving things forwards. They got old. I mean, like Toph Bayfong would actually be the one saying, we got old. Nothing much happened. And, <laughs> uh, and yeah, there, there, there'd be no sentimentality from her for side of things. But uh, for me, there was just... A couple of glances back that were missed, and now that it's over, it feels like we might never get them. Of their family members, I would have to say that uh, Mako and Boleyn's cousin, too, is easily my favorite. Mm -hmm. And a big part of that is because he's uh, voiced by Greg Sipes, who also voices Michelangelo in the new Ah, I knew I recognized that voice. He's got this perfect, dumb, lovable surfer tone yeah and i kind of wish there was room for a little more of him in this series because yeah. he's he's fun it's actually quite a big thing that they found their family in the earth kingdom because it's sort of what cements what uh bolin does in this series because because he's um he's found out his family's in part of the earth kingdom and he essentially is part of it he's felt he's had this duty to help yeah. other people within the kingdom so it's actually quite a big plot point when you think about it it's Bolin's roots, so uh, mm. suddenly he feels like he has to be more of a man and, and less of a, a boy. I, I, an important scene for Marco as well is when he hands the scarf over to his mm. grandmother. Um, it, it felt like Marco was letting go of his uh, trauma about his... I, I, I mean, he seems to have come to terms with it to a degree by that point. But handing the scarf over to his grandmother, it, it, it felt like a symbolic gesture, uh, mm-hmm. symbolic gesture of him, you know, finally getting, you know, getting on with his life and moving on from the the past. That, and being uh, less of a moody emo teenager as well. Oh, true. Yes. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but a lot of people did complain about exactly that. And I like I like the fact that that's a permanent thing. It's not just like it, the scarf suddenly reappears somewhere down the lines. Like, yeah, I needed a scarf. It was all my identity. It, it it's a prop, and, and Grandma actually wears it later on. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Ryu. You know, there's like a buttload of gangs at this school. This one gang kept wanting me to join because I'm pretty good with a bow staff. It's Napoleon Dynamite, but as an airbender. And it almost seems like they are stunt casting or dream casting. And Napoleon Dynamite is the kind of film that's going to rub people, either rub people up the wrong way and they're going to hate it, or that they're going to find themselves, like that they love it. Or like me, originally hate it and then find themselves in a, uh, a quotation competition at work with your workmates who basically after by the end of one day they've said all the lines of napoleon dynamite and suddenly you want to see it again and then when you do you love it that's what happened to me (laughs) (laughs) but it was really fun to see (laughs) a a moody basement bound teenager personified by john heater you got like three feet of air that time and it is quite nice that um he hasn't just sat around doing nothing. He's found his own little calling, being like guiding people through the spirit forest yeah. in Republic City. So he's not just sitting around in his one's basement anymore. Yeah, it would have felt like just a, a, a one-off comedy incident had they not actually followed up on it and given him some like sense of direction. And um, speaking of uh, Nana, uh, royalty and republics uh, in the since the Earth Queen is horribly murdered and out of the way, we got Prince Wu. Um, introduced at the beginning of this series. Again, I think, like Napoleon Dynamite, probably would either make people hate him or love him. Yeah, I, I, and it, the the writing is 
is done in such a way where you are meant to mm. hate this guy straight away. Um, the first couple of scenes with him, I, I was thinking, God, this entire family is just a waste of space. <laughs> <laughs> um, just like his his granddad. I, I actually, I, I'm I, I'm not quite sure what his relation with the Earth Queen is. He was his uh, nephew. Nephew. Okay, so yeah, I just. He he comes off as an idiot. He comes off quite uh, quite like um, the the first Earth King that we encountered mm, yeah. in this universe. Not somebody who's malicious or or deliberately insensitive in the way that um, the Earth Queen is. Just somebody just c- kind of ignorant and idiotic and isn't really aware of how privileged he is. Yeah. Um, but as as the season goes on he does reveal that he is more compassionate and more altruistic than his uh, other relations and um yeah i did end up liking Wu in the end but it it was a long struggle to get there <laughs> um but yeah i'm i'm not i'm not a huge fan of the comedy with this character um it, it felt like they were going for Bolin style comedy, but Bolin is just a lot better at it. Mm. And you, you compare the two, and you're like, mm, I'd, I'd rather you gave those jokes to um, the voice actor who plays uh, Bolin. I, I apologize, uh, his name has left my head. PJ Brian? Burn? Burn. Burn. Yeah. Anyway. Anyway. <laughs> I, I kind of wish a lot of Prince Wu's lines were handed to PJ Byrne yeah. uh, because I, I just think Bolin's delivery is uh, a lot funnier. And yeah, um, but he uh, he does serve a purpose of sh- kind of showing the Earth Kingdom moving on, kind of moving away from its royalist beliefs and going towards a democracy um, towards the end of the, the show. So it, he he kind of... He's he's a symbol of the Earth Kingdom moving from old values to new values, which yeah. uh, which was which was very effective. And he voices at the end with everything that he's learned throughout the series that he's um, now suddenly pro republic. If they if they have a political agenda, if Mike and Brian have a political agenda at all, they're pushing it's pro republic. And it's not like violently anti royalist, but it, they do go out of their way time and again to show how pointless and uh, uh, soft and um, idiotic and um, entitled and uh, superfluous to requirement all royals or royal figures are, appear to be within the four kingdoms. Yeah. I think part Four of, nations, sorry, four nations. Part of what's key about the way Wu is set up, um, and I think you're onto something, Josh, with him being um, reminiscent of who I presume would be his grandfather or great-grandfather sorry great-granduncle great-granduncle well (laughs) well, whatever his relation was to the the king with the bear um Um, it's i remember the bear's name but not the actor who plays bowling but he is very much this decorative figurehead and very little else and but it's he he comes across as somebody who doesn't entirely know that he's a decorative figurehead and nothing else. He actually thinks that he's going to be allowed to have some say in what goes on and that he's going to have some control over um, 
the way that things play out and his reaction when he finds out that his coronation is going to be quite a low-key affair is it, it kind of typical of this, that sense of entitlement that comes from nobody ever having told him, actually, you're not entitled to have this, that and the other. And And by that by that same tone, he makes a very nice contradiction to, um, or a, a good contrast, should I say, to Kavira, hmm. who kind of is completely the opposite, somebody who is not supposed to have any power. She is a placeholder who's been put there while they figure out what to do next and ends up being in supreme control of everything. And and that's from starting from nothing, not from having her position handed to her by virtue of, of who she was born. Yeah. I think that is the main reason that he is pushed so far into the in the oblivious kind of obnoxious idiot direction just because on a surface level Kuvira's actions and the way she's asserting control over the kingdom looks very plainly villainous in a lot of ways but Prince Wu being such a moron kind of helps to preserve a little bit of that ambiguity of maybe even if I'm not 100% comfortable with the way Kavira is going about it, maybe this she's still better. Maybe it's important that, like, despite her methods, maybe it is better for her to end up in charge at the end of this. Yeah, it's it's kind of the, the same issue that um, the House of Cards has. Uh, Frank Underwood is clearly a terrible person, but he's extremely competent at what he does. Mm. And so when you compare him to the other idiot politicians, you're like, well, he, he is self-serving and kind of evil, but at least he gets the job done. And that's kind of how you feel about Kavira in this series. She might be kind of selfish and controlling but she's competent she can lead a nation and you look at Wu and you're like well he'd probably be a terrible leader so for the meantime yes I understand why everyone is flocking to her side and would rather her lead the country than him She's the pendulum swing from Zaire as well, because he's been advocating total anarchy and total chaos. Yeah. Um, And this is ultimately, this is how bad leaders get their position and keep their position for so long, because they usually come on the pendulum swing of a previous leader who was bad for all sorts of different reasons. And as a result, people kind of kid themselves by saying, well, all right, they may do X, Y, Z, but at least they're not doing ABC. And then when people have got sick of them doing X, Y, Z, chances are they're going to go back to ABC again. Boris Johnson beats out Cameron for next prime minister. Will no people prefer bumbling to evil? the problem with zaheer's idea for balance is that he isn't accounting for human nature and people like leaders general population we like even if they're evil even if well we (laughs) we've seen it in our own history absolutely and we've seen it in this country for sure you know like Mm. People who promise the right, you know, the right things, who deliver on, you know, certain aspects of their policies, like you get strong, a huge... impressive speakers. Yeah, they seem like they're really committed to what they're doing. You're like, I, I don't know what how this is going to end up, but they look like they're going somewhere. 
I like him. I'd have a drink with him. I'm not going to look at his policies too uh, mm. too clearly, but he looks like a kind of guy I could have a drink with, so I'm going to vote for him. Oh, my God. Some, that always uh, astounds me Bush. when people say that. Yeah. Somehow George W. Bush was an, a heady cocktail of incompetent and evil. Yeah. <laughs> probably how he managed eight years frankly Jeez. but yeah the, the people about whom it is said i would i could see myself going to have a drink with them usually they're the kind of people that i can see myself throwing a drink over them <laughs> there's a lot of people i drink with that i would not want running this country <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. i actually wouldn't like to have a drink with kavira she's um uh she would make me nervous yeah 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 sorry there's a key difference uh, between Wu and Bolin, we were making that co- comparison earlier and that they were both kind of comic relief. With Bolin, you've at least got a good-hearted, mm. re- like, good person who's also pretty competent most of the time. He misjudges people and he makes mistakes and he gets himself in over his head. But he's a good guy who sees the best in people and he's someone that you want to see succeed and when you want the best for him. Wu is just awful in every way. He's just a like a selfish, bratty incompetent just just they and they kind of beat him into the ground in that way of just bringing bringing him to the lowest point possible and you don't even feel that bad for him you're just like you're you suck stop being so terrible (laughs) one moment that really summed him up for me that hadn't hit me quite so hard the first time i saw it when they're in the restaurant and um he's flirting in inverted commas with cora and uh, he says, oh, oh, go into the Avatar, Avatar state for me. I want to see your eyes glow. That's like every sleazy guy who comes up to you at a bar and is like, oh, what are you so miserable about? Come on, give me a smile. No. I, I, I find it very difficult to hate Wu after Joffrey. That's true. See? Pendulum swing. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least he's not doing that. Yeah. But and frankly, that could be anything. They they definitely stick with their theme of it's only through adversity that somebody can find their true calling or become better because it's only at his lower point that he finally becomes useful, like mm. starts living for himself and actually becomes a likable person. And in doing so, it's not that he even becomes like he was a great leader who always just needed to be inspired. He just comes to the end realizing... I would not be a great leader. Yeah. I am not going to try. <laughs> I'm going to pass this along to people who might be great leaders. Again, though, his key skill is ironically in what he's been set up to be, which is a mouthpiece, mm. saying what other people are telling him to say or singing other people's songs in order to inspire and relax the people who are getting really panicky. Mm. Basically, yeah. his his voice is what turns out to be the useful thing about him. It's just how that's applied. Point. Which again harks back to this whole what they have a tendency to do with the villains in this series, which is that it's not their ideologies that are in and of themselves evil, it's what they do with them and how far they go with them. And of course, my biggest thanks goes to Asami Sato and Future Industries. She brought our old central terminal into the modern era. Ladies and gentlemen, the world is entering a new age of peace and prosperity. Soon, Prince Wu will take his rightful place on the Earth Kingdom throne. And thanks to our updated rail system, Republic City and the Earth Kingdom will be united like never before. Hey there, Asami, right? 
great train house. Maybe you can give me a personal tour sometime. What do you say? I do like the idea of putting you on a train and sending you far, far away. <laughs> that's, that's funny. I like funny dames. Maybe I should introduce myself. I'm Prince Wu, future king. Yeah, I'm aware of who you are. Don't let my reputation intimidate you. I'm still human just like everyone else. Only more human. Like extra human or mm, superhuman. Superhuman. So what do you say? Can I show you a low-key night out with a superhuman soon-to-be king? Prince Wu, President Raiko has some really important king stuff to talk to you about. Now? <sighs> Fine. Think over the offer. I'll be back. Unification, idealism, and fascism. On that note, let's talk about Kavira herself. Now that I've uh, seen, uh, seen season four and then went back to season three, she suddenly is like she was right there all along. The way she comes across in this, she has one, no, she has two settings. One is everything is proceeding as I have foreseen it, whereby she gives a little smile and it's like, you know, okay, I am in control here. Everything's fine. The next is everything is not proceeding as I have foreseen it. I'm going to threaten the person that's in my way until everything does proceed the way I've foreseen it. She's voiced by uh, uh, Zelda Williams, uh, daughter of Robin, who's actually kept off Twitter uh, since, especially since her father's death, because she just didn't want to talk to a lot of people talking about her father being dead. Um, but I think she came back on uh, around about the time that um, the series wrapped and just said, oh, that was awesome. And she's kind of back. She's back on now. A very talented voice actress straight away and a, a very powerfully put forward character that up until the last moment, I, I didn't hate her. I was intimidated by her, but I didn't. She just the way it's written and the way they crack through. We talk about this obviously later just suddenly completely unlocks Kavira as a character. And that then when you watch it again, the whole way through it, it, it makes sense the way she would adhere to this control. Yeah. Well, it's all about uh, creating a safe, secure nation mm. where nobody can suffer any kind of pain or... But she doesn't realise by trying to force that she's causing all sorts of suffering and pain. I think she, she realises she's causing it, but as yeah. far as she's concerned, it's for the greater good. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and politically, she's completely... she's the pol As Sharon's already mentioned, she's the polar opposite of Zaheer. Mm. Um, she is very much pro-government, pro-collectivism, pro-everyone uniting for a common cause, mm. whereas Zaheer is very much individualism. Everyone serves the serves themselves and to a certain extent like i get i get where she's coming from like coming together and you know combining our resources together that that sounds great what you know what uh falls apart for me is when she starts manipulating states to join her mm. through intimidation and blackmail or just letting them to, you know, not giving them a real choice. I will, you can join my, you know, my new Earth Empire, or I'll let you die, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Um, when she turns up at Zalfu to uh, talk to Sue, she has an enormous army with her, and Sue says, you know, how can we bring this army to threaten us? And uh, she says, 
without a flicker of irony. Oh no, I just uh, I just brought them here to 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 show what we've achieved. Basically. To show what we've achieved, and then the minute that Sue makes things not proceed as she has foreseen it. She says, right, now I am threatening you. So she was going to threaten her all along, but she's quite happy to use what she's seen other diplomats use, which is lying yeah. and bending the truth and covering things up. But she's, she's not very good at it. Yeah. She's not very good at hiding her hand. She's she's very forceful with everything. Again, she's on this all or nothing track. She's such a a, a, a forceful and stubborn person in herself and that comes from from the looks of things this uh, childhood fear of being left alone and being left without resources and without security and you can almost imagine I mean I'd, I'd have to watch it again and very closely to see if they've actually done this I wouldn't put it past them but there are a couple of moments where she has to make some hard choices where you get a flash of what looks like almost panic across her face um, and it's it's like she could that's her moment of choice when she could choose to do the compassionate thing but this fear of being left alone again this fear of being left without security rises up in her and will not let her allow somebody else to walk away and this idea that she's got to have every state in the earth kingdom under this empire otherwise the whole thing falls apart and it's not worth it and then when she's got everything in the earth empire then she's got to have republic city otherwise the whole thing falls apart despite the fact that republic city isn't really even connected with the earth kingdom it's it's the famine attitude it's the having been deprived of that control and that power when she was a child and making the decision whether security consciously or rather not, than control and power um control over her own environment then so mm. the, the um having a sense of having some power over what happens to her and that becoming this big huge um expansion to having to have control over everything mm. yeah although i do get the sense that if suyin had moved to take authority over the earth kingdom herself kuvira actually would have backed her up yeah. I, yeah, I get the feel like I don't think Kuvira like had aims necessarily to be the to be the dictator over this oh. nation. Ultimately, I think she fully believes in what Zalfu represents and the progress that Zalfu has shown and what that vision of the Earth Kingdom can be. And there, I feel I get a, there's a sense of righteous anger that kind of comes from her from Kuvira about the state of the Earth Kingdom and the decades upon decades of just ruin and entropy and injustice that a lot of archaic corrupt systems in the nation have just done to the people who live there and it's kind of fueled this cold resolve to right those wrongs no matter what to get to unify to restore give new birth to this nation in steel and iron how however is necessary and then with with once that control is established then those wrongs can finally be righted no matter how many wrongs have to be committed on the way she wanted to follow a strong leader her entire life and was basically waiting for that person to come along and eventually when it didn't come along she decided she had to be that leader herself and what she approximates on a technical scale on paper works perfectly well as a leader but she doesn't have the compassion or ability to actually 
gauge consequences long term and the consequences for the smaller people at the bottom and the majority of people at the bottom that is required of a great leader yeah it seems as if she's um she's not fit to rule in a different way that Wu is like she's totally competent she's a she is a born she's a leader figure but she lacks the perspective to see things outside of her what's in front of her and what she yeah. thinks is right like like as you said um dan um, she she has no like she has this cold resolve that as long as i'm getting things done everything's okay never mind the fact that i'm creating slave labor camps and i'm literally threatening people's whole livelihood to get what i want which is like the exact opposite of what you should be trying to achieve. Mm. Yeah. She keeps steamrolling straight through. And I like the, I, this might be, might be me just like reading into things, but I sort of like how they've constantly have her on a train, just constantly moving forward. And it's like she herself is steamrolling through the kingdom mm. onto yeah. the next target. And it doesn't yeah. matter what's going to happen. Like I'm coming through and, I'm going to get what I want done. I'm going to get what I want. And then I'm on to the next point. She does typify that uh, incredible rigidity mm. that kind of goes with the earthbender mentality as well, which yeah. creates a, a lovely closed circle because if you think about it, all of this kicked off with what happens when the Fire Nation gets out of control. Yeah. Then it looped round to Amon, who was trying to eradicate bending altogether. So we established that that didn't work. Then you've got um, uh, Unalok comes from the... Uh, water tribe and tries to take over the whole world with that. Then you've got Zaire taking the air uh, air guru attitude to its unpleasant extreme. And now you've had the Earth Kingdom having its turn. And then that's kind of your true balance. None of these things works alone. They mm -hmm. all have to work together if this world is going to succeed. Yeah, And also... Like each time, like it's always been an individual, like who doesn't take any advice from anybody else. They be believe they are the sole arbiter of what's right and what mm. needs to happen. Yeah. Whereas, yeah. a good, a true good leader takes advice and counsel from those around them and looks at things from different perspective. But Kavira, like she's the be all and end all. Like nobody quench questions her, and even her fiance, like just goes along with everything that happens. Like he. It seems as if he's a subordinate before her fiance. That's yeah. why I'd always vote for a bumbling fool, because at least you can then form a revolution and get rid of him. <laughs> if he's not working, if you form a revolution against somebody who will kill the people if they attempt to do that, you just have a bloodbath. At the least problem you with the bumbling fool, though, is that you then have a power vacuum, which a dictator is likely to step into. Exactly. The previous head of the revolution. Mm. Um <laughs> Well, at least with a bumbling fool, there's always the outside chance they might have a good advisor. Yes, but if you put a good advisor with a fascist, he'll just have him shot. Mm. You have that security of at least. At least somebody's telling him something and he's listening. Yeah. Like, I could go, if I got close to him, I could give them advice. Whereas, yes. a, whereas someone like Amon or... Um, Unlock? Yeah, Unlock. Like, they, or the Fire Lord. Or the Fire Lord. Like, they're not asking for input from anybody. Like, oh, I no matter what you say. This, there have been several Fire Lords. <laughs> uh, Fire Lord Ozai. Yeah. And when like, people try to give them advice, it yeah. does not end happily. Yeah. Yeah. 
Similar, yeah, Azula was a fascist as well. She she absolutely had no uh, uh, interest in in the uh, the well being of others. She just trampled on everything. She's kind of like um, both Azula and Kavira. If you actually psychoanalyze them, are very similar in that they have uh, they've been forced to grow up way too quickly, but then they stopped before they really developed emotionally. So they have almost a childlike view of what it takes to be an adult yeah it they both it, they both lost their matriarch figures azula when she was younger yeah. and um kavira when sulin disagreed with her and like was adamant about what she believed was like the best course of action yeah. like it, it's it's like it's like uh the teenage rebellion stage coming at the latest and worst possible stage mm-hmm. yeah I, I think the the major difference, though, is that Kuvira had every chance to be a different person. Yeah, Azula was kind of doomed from birth, considering her father, yeah. um, who's you know passed on some rather severe mental illness. Um, and I, I think when you see Kuvira f- three years before um, her rise to power, you get this get the sense that she did go into this with a very altruistic view of trying to help people. And I I think there is a part of her character, the character we see now is the power has absolutely gone to her head because every time somebody says the great uniter to her, a smirk appears on her face and it it does, it, it feels like the whole, the, the symbol that she's become, it's gone to her head. She sees herself as above people now because, you know, every it, it's the whole, you know, um, I, the, like Caesar hiring a guy to walk behind him and say, you're only a man, you're only a man, as you walk through the crowds. Because, like, it does get to you. It, that, that, you know, the crowd yelling your name and saying, oh, you're the best, you're going you're gonna to lead us to a bright future, that, that does get to you. That will eventually corrupt your thinking. And especially when that's not seated in anything that you genuinely have... Um, grown up with being an internal self-confidence. I mean, you look at somebody like Varric, where all of his self-confidence is based around what he can do and things that he's proved to himself over and over and over again. He's an arrogant idiot a lot of the time, but at least that comes from a place that, of, of total self-belief. So um, when things start to... Um, happen that might cause him to question himself he's still got that core of believing who he is without necessarily having to perform the uh, arrogant stubborn incredibly harmful actions to back up that self-image whereas with Kuvira because she'll have come from this place of feeling like she's empty and she's worthless and she got left behind, the great uniter image is now all she has. She can't afford to let that slip. And I think that's part of where the stubbornness comes from and that's part of why she has to have every single state, why she has to have Zaufu, why she has to have Republic City, because she's got to maintain that image with no cracks whatsoever. Now, don't take this the wrong way, but I can't wait for you to leave. How else is she supposed to take that but the wrong way? I mean, because I've never had a pen pal before. I'm going to write you so many letters, and just to get the ball rolling, here. Spoiler alert, Pabu and I already miss you. Thanks. That's sweet. Are you sure you don't want some company in the Southern Water Tribe? I'm happy to come with you. No, 
I appreciate it, but I'll only be gone a couple of weeks. A little time alone will be good for me. Now, I don't want you to worry about a thing while you're gone. Your recovery should be your number one concern. Jinora, the airbenders, and I have everything under control. Bye, Cora! Get better soon. Don't forget to write! Recovery from trauma, and this was the uh, section that made me think this might be the best uh, Korra season, uh, maybe the best, um, on balance, Avatar season. Um, the sequences where Korra has to come to terms with what's happened to her, and this is cumulative over the uh, the years of, of being um, captured. She's been captured like half a dozen times, and... Um, <clears throat> Tormented and put through pain and suffering and attacked. It specifically, she gets it, it like these flashes come back to her, like um, uh, PTSD of um, like incredibly traumatic events, and how that's handled. Usually with Cora, and you pointed this out while we were watching it, um, Sharon. One of the key weaknesses with it as a series is. Well, do you want to say this one, actually? Uh, do you mean the rushing thing? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the Certainly, it happens several times later on in this season, and it's happened in earlier seasons as well, where mm. there is a problem that Cora cannot overcome. She can't think her way to the solution. She has no idea what to do. Somebody then tells her how to proceed, and she wraps it all up in about five minutes. <laughs> and it's almost like that's her her biggest block is that she can't figure out the best thing to do. But as soon as she knows the best thing to do, there is literally nothing else standing in her way. Like being stuck in a game and consulting an FAQ. Exactly. (laughs) And if that's the point, then fine. But I think they needed to make more of that if that was the case, because um, what it resulted in was far too many conflict situations being um, coming across that either they'd been dragged out unnecessarily at the beginning mm-hmm. or just resolved too fast. Because there, there she's not actually learning balance. from it and she's not um, overcoming it through basically coming to terms with what she's up against mm-hmm. and because she's basically being handed the, the, the guide – and going straight through, it's kind of stunted her development up to now. Mm. I mean, that there's been a bit like she went through some trauma at the end of season two, she went through some trauma at the end of season one, and some terrible trauma at the end of season three, which, like I said before, upset me so much I didn't really want know whether I really wanted to proceed and at the same time couldn't wait for the resolution of that particular side of things. Um, so, but she goes through the trauma and then just doesn't really confront it or, or, or talk about it and I loved 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 the fact that it didn't just get resolved by going to Katara and lying in a warm bath um, and that it required multiple different people and uh, approaches to actually get through it I will say that 
I'm still trying to decide whether season four is my favourite season overall. I'm pretty sure it is. It's very close to outstripping even the, the original three seasons of, of Ang for me. Mm. But episode two of yeah. season four is definitely my favourite episode alarm. of Avatar ever. Yeah, I think me too. Agreed. Uh, even, even after seeing her in the wheelchair in book three's finale, this wasn't... I didn't have any idea of the extent of the damage that Korra had suffered or how important it was going to be in this final book. I, this just wasn't a direction I'd expected them to take at I all. Did, and I did, completely. So, but I was so thoroughly impressed by how they did handle it and how big a part of the season it was. Mm. I think um, a huge thing for me was the fact that they were so consistent with her character in how they showed what she was going through. Because Cora's not a verbal person. She doesn't talk about how she's feeling most of the time. So I mean, she does a little bit later on in this season, but that's kind of the point. She works up to that. Prior to this, she is not a verbal communicator. And so all of the anguish that she's feeling at this point, it's all visual. It's in the way she stands. It's in the way she walks. It's in the fact that two of the key things that I would say, um, narratively speaking, are pinned to trauma so often that they've almost become cliched. But anybody who's been through any of the kinds of trauma that, that are likely to trigger them will understand immediately what they mean is cutting her hair and doing something that causes her pain and keeping doing it over and over and over again. Cora alone really uh, hit home for me uh, because um, uh, some people listening to this might know, but for everyone who doesn't, uh, my my father uh, had a car accident when I was very, very young, uh, around eight, and um, he had to have his leg amputated, his left leg, and... Um, the scenes where uh, Cora has to go through physiotherapy and uh, the the emotions she goes through really, really got to me. And uh, I'm actually kind of tearing up right now just talking about it um, because they might having had conversations with my dad about the physiotherapy. Uh, he went through um he he always talks about it being the the absolute worst point in his life um the accident in itself he barely remembers but the the recovery period the trying to drag himself back from the abyss like he he's always talked about that being like just a horrible horrible point in his life and now he's fine like he's as fully recovered as he possibly can be but um, just the scene where Korra like shouts at Katara and gets really angry at Katara, that really that really got to me because that that's what happens. Um, people who suffer that kind of that accident, that that kind of trauma, they start getting angry at people helping them mm-hmm. because they feel like they they should be able to do that themselves. Like the fact that you, it's the fact that you're taking power away from them that they should have themselves. So even though that your heart's in the right place and you want to help those people and you and you want to aid them, you're actually, by trying to help, you know, trying to do all these things for them, it, 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 it feels like a humiliation to them. 
now ultimately you know they embrace the fact that you know you're you're trying to help and they they push through it but that that scene for me just it really triggered some memories for me and it was uh and it was really well handled it felt very true to life sorry <laughs> don't apologize thank you josh again well um i don't know how to follow that up but uh okay for for somebody like Cora, in book three, it feels like these the end of book two through most of this book has just been a slow process of breaking Cora down in her own confidence. In book three, she'd lost confidence in her ability to make wise decisions without the ability mm. to consult past Avatar, the FAQ, basically. Oh, and, God, yes. <laughs> and We're going to take now, the FAQ away from you, Jesus. And now she's lost even her physical strength and fighting power, which are the things yeah. that she mm. excels at. That's what she can has always been able to count on, and it's what From she'd always four years old. Yeah, and it's what she'd lean on. The instant she like she either thought she had the right direction or didn't know how to solve the thing, she was going to brute force her way through. And having even that thing that she's always been super confident in and taken away, and on top of the severe pain and the frustration and the hurt of the healing process, just the knowledge that. She has this duty that she's failing to perform every day she's not out there and that there's this fear of what people think of her and the fear that people think she might no longer be needed. And then that other lingering fear that maybe they're right that they don't need her anymore. It's just so many things that Cora has to be going through. And and I fully agree. I love that they don't wrap this up neatly. I love that it's multiple stages of Cora thinking, all right, I've. I think I'm ready and then realizing, no, I'm not through this yet. And then thinking, okay, now I'm ready. But then finding, no, I'm not through this yet. That it's not a neat, clean, easy process at any point. And, and, and ultimately she has to accept that she will never be the same again. And part, part of the reason her, her trauma is prolonged is because she keeps trying to go back to the status quo. She wants to be the person she was before all of this. Yeah. But it, it, it's her meeting with Zaheer and real, and kind of just embracing the fact, look, this happened to me. Oh. And it was a terrible thing. And now I need to move on from this. Um, there's, there's this uh, Jungian concept uh, called the shadow self. And I think... Um, Cora alone really taps into that with Cora actually battling herself. And the idea of the shadow self is that it gets stronger the more you reject it, the more you pretend it's not there or or fight against it. What you have to do is embrace it and assimilate it, and then you can move on. Um, and I, the way they handled that was really well done. And then also having the shadow self kind of project itself onto Kavira and um, mm. and Cora having to ab- embrace the fact that Kavira kind of represents a lot of the darker feelings within herself, the things that she might be capable of as well. Mm. Um, that was beautifully handled. I was Keep- wondering whether we should do the talk about the Kavira. Tell you what. Save the Kavira fight. Um, yeah, save that aspect for the Kavira fight and um, okay. when she goes to Caesar here. Because that, yeah, this does get left unresolved in some regard. She gets the poison out, but um, yeah, yeah, there's still the shadow self, as you say, Josh. Hang on, yeah. cool. Let me just uh, bring it back a bit. Um, 
so I realize now why um, <laughs> why I was so ticked off at the lack of exposure for Fire Lord Zuko uh, because he's the Fire Sage. The Water Sage is Katara, who she goes to see and helps, what well, sort of helps her get back on her feet. But she he doesn't she doesn't heal her. Um, what is it? It's. I mean, basically, he, he, she doesn't allow. Katara Cora, heals her body, but not her mind. I yeah, think essentially, yeah. her mind is still quite fractured. I mean, basically, Katara helps her deal with the physical side of things. Uh, Toph, wonderful Toph, helps her deal with the anger side of things, and Zaheer helps her deal with the fear side of things. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So Toph appears just when she needs her. The Earth Sage, and then there's the Air Sage later on, who's uh, Zaheer, and the Spirit Sage. If you folks remember way back in season two. Ah. Oh, um. Iro. Ah, right. Uncle, who appears at the exact correct time when Cora needs to know about spiritual energy and spiritual dealings. And very specifically deals with her as a child. Yeah. But she never deals with anyone regarding fire. And that was basically Zuko's job. I mean, I don't know whether or how they could have written that in, or even just that she needs needs to talk to Zuko and does. But there is an imbalance there. And as we already know take away one of the elements and it doesn't work entirely perfectly. Although spirit makes up for the lack of fire, I would suppose here. You could also argue that uh, Korra has such a large fire element herself. That she is the fire that she is, Yeah, she is sufficient being fire to um, be the starting point and not really require any more of that. But I mean, I do agree with you. I think the, the, almost total lack of any sort of fire contribution in this season is sorely missed. And even though you get that meeting um, with uh, Fire Lord... Azumi. I met Fire Lord... Azumi, thank you. Azumi. met Lord Fire Lord Azumi, she says Wonderful. what's up. She looked awesome. I wanted to know more about her, but we got such a tiny, tiny speck. Yeah. Um, but you get that. And then... Even Mako hardly does any firebending in this season. Mm. And when he does, it's in sort of a, a very um, controlled and very specific aspect. Yeah. So it, it really is as all, almost as if all the fire has been drained out of it. And I'm very sure that there was a, a con- that was a conscious choice and there was a very good reason that they did that. Uh, yeah. But it does make things feel a little imbalanced. Yeah. yeah, it is imbalanced. But then again, I suppose it kind of has to be. If you think about it, um, the fire is uh, an element that's synonymous with proactivity. And since the Fire Lord was defeated by Aang, the other other four nations have been a little tentative of exactly what to do. The Air Nation have sort of come back, but even, like, Tenzin did did not go, right, the We Airbenders are going to come back in a big way. He said, right, I'm going to have a small family. And he did. And he retired to an island and sort of helped raise a small airbender cult and there's a um <laughs> the, the the earth kingdom has stagnated the fire kingdom has done nothing sorry the fire nation has done nothing aggressive for ages and the water uh tribe have allowed a 
despot to grow up in their midst and lie to them to the point where he was almost able to cover the world in darkness. But that proactivity, that fire, is not there. So technically, in doing the... Uh, well, in, in dealing with the Fire Lord, Aang created an imbalance, which still isn't fully balanced by the end of Korra Season 4. And that's good, and that's fine. Because ultimately, if everything's totally balanced the whole time, you don't get events. <laughs> it really is just as a fan, mostly. You do sort of want you do wish you could see a bit more of just the current state of the fire nation and its yeah, leaders yeah. just just where the fire nation is i totally understand the fire nation after the events of the ang series being very reserved and okay we're going to kind of rebuild ourselves we are going to dial back we have a lot of people very angry with us for good reason and we're just going to try to slowly heal this thing yeah also, but um, you, you do wish that you could see more, though. Kind of wish that you kind of imagine that the Earth Kingdom are going to like take that stick now, like okay, right, pass that to us. Right now, we're humbled. <laughs> also, <Sorry>. um, <laughs> in the um, the Promise comic trilogy, they did actually like it shows like Zuko and the Earth Kingdom actually ca- almost came to start a new war, and yeah, like it goes to show like they, the Fire Nation <sighs> is probably so adamant as not to be aggressive that. Well, they're, try- they're trying to completely change their image over cent- because of centuries of uh, aggression. Well, you can qualify this one, Jerome. Don't you think that the uh, promise and the secret and the events of that could possibly have provided ample fodder for an episode or two? Oh, oh yeah. Uh, previously yeah. on Avatar. I mean, <laughs> it goes into what happened to Zuko's mother and everything, so yeah. that could be a full animated short. Totally. Or a movie. <laughs> Anyway, <laughs> so anyway, um, right. So where were we? The recovering from trauma and Toph Bay Fong appears as if from nowhere, exactly when Cora needs her, and it's it was a reveal that was basically right up there with uh, when Uncle turns up at the end of uh, of uh, Spirits for me. Just a wonderful, wonderful moment. And uh, the the uh, to her credit, the uh, actress playing old Toph nails. Yeah. That child and and that uh, it's like it's like basically Toph got to age ten and then stopped. Well, what's interesting is I get the impression that Toph has kind of reverted yeah. in her old like, age. At some point in the middle, she did actually try a bit more. Yeah, and it and it seems like the middle part of her life was the most unhappy part of her life yeah it, it's it's almost like she ran away um in her later years to kind of return to the part of her life that was she most happy yeah and um she, I, I, that's what yeah that's what i think explains her kind of childlike behavior and immaturity mm. because yeah. she's trying to run away from the the authority figure she became in republic city yeah, they say she wandered off into the swamp to seek enlightenment. I don't buy it. I think she just was sick of people and yeah. left. And because she's still, she is her same stubborn, cocky, abrasive self. Maybe even more stubborn and set in her ways than before. Just at, with older age, she still teaches her way and her way only. I can't help thinking that what happened with Sue and Lynn had a big, big impact on her in the sense that, if you remember, her relationship with her parents was not a happy one. They wildly overprotected her, which she was desperate to get away from. 
And then she realized that she'd swung so far in the other direction that she'd raised one daughter who couldn't take responsibility for anything and another daughter who was determined to take responsibility for everything. Yeah. And then you get to see the way that Sue has be, or you, specifically you get to see Sue regret the way she's behaved with Opal so that you can see how that cycle's continued. But I, I think you're absolutely right. The authority figure that she was running away from was herself. Yeah. She's a fun Yoda, though. Oh, <laughs> she is. God, yes, she is. Uh, just some of the, her lines where, where uh, Cora... <laughs> Where, where she says... That was terrible. <laughs> Maybe for you, I had a great time. I never realized how much I missed tormenting the Avatar. I wish you were putting up more of a fight, but it was still fun. You were tossing me around like a rag doll all day long. I know, and I'm an old lady. Imagine me in my prime. <laughs> I, I would have, have destroyed, destroyed you. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what the best one was for me? When Cora says to her, tell me about how you taught Aang earthbending. What's there to tell? I threw some rocks at the Avatar. He got all whiny and Sokka fell in a hole. I thought there'd be more to it than that. What about the time you guys took down the Fire Lord? That must have been epic. Oh, yeah. It was hot. I was on a blimp. And I think a giant turtle showed up. Wow, what a day. Okay, you're terrible at telling stories. You're terrible at listening to them. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh God, that was so needed. That was great. And I, the, I, I'm astonished at how they managed to balance the real pain, the real trauma, with genuine laughs, sometimes within seconds of each other. There's a point where, where Cora's convalescing with uh, Katara and she's obviously going through real genuine agony and then you you're reading she's reading bolin's letters with their childlike drawings in them and, and bolin's wonderful narration and i was just gut laughing because i needed to at that point yeah. and for some reason it it really it it worked in a way that you remember when we were talking about deathly hallows and um uh, I, I pointed out that sometimes joe rowling's talking about merlin's pants in amongst the the, the trauma of uh, of uh, living in that tent, just didn't quite gel. Um, this felt more like what I think she was going for with that. Yeah. This this is something this series has always done well: balancing humour and drama. Um, mm. The original series did it well. Cora does it well, and this season I think is where they've managed to demonstrate how good they are at it because they are showing some really complex dark material here yeah. and and uh, some incredibly of incredibly weighty for a kid's show yeah and also some of the funniest stuff i've seen on tv at the same time but neither feel like they're um you know that they're uh, they're clashing neither yeah. feel like they're clashing they're working together one is softening the blow of the other um, it's 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 really skill. It, it, it's really impressive to see a team of creative people manage that because it, it is extremely hard to pull off. I love Mako's letter as well. Just I'm even more confident now that awkwardness is the single character trait that he has always needed to be likable. Yeah. <laughs> just like the letter is like so. I'm not very good at writing letters. It's two in the afternoon. Weather is fair. <laughs> <laughs> My dearest Cora. <laughs> no wonder Asami is the only one Korra can confide in. Like, of course she would be. Like, Mako and Bolin are not equipped 
to understand or help her through the kind of experience she's going through right now. They're they're perfectly well-meaning, and they would want to, but they aren't, like, Bolin is not going to be able to probably plumb the depths of darkness that Korra is going through right now. Mm. Not not really. And Mako is going to try, but I don't think he's going to be able to understand it either. Asami's not really, or not what don't. not what Korra needs at the time. And Asami's the one who's going to be there to really listen and nurture and just yeah, mostly just listen, I think. Yeah. Another person who uh, lost her mother, uh, you know, your last your matriarch, former Q. Um <laughs> 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 another a girl who lost her mother but the uh, asami's always been very mature from the beginning and um yeah the uh, the bolin and marco are, are fine lads and would actually make decent boyfriend material they do care about the people they're around and especially marco's come on um leaps and bounds from the sort of the um he, he was i mean he's downright rude in the first season yeah uh and several people said that they didn't get the whole Korra Asami thing. You know, let's talk about shipping at this point because it feels natural. <laughs> the whole Korra Asami uh, ending, that it hadn't been flagged properly, which astonished me because I feel like I've been uh, leaning into this since maybe the beginning of season two. So it, it wasn't like, yes, my wishes have been fulfilled at the end. I was just like, that's... Well, actually, I was like, actually, I already f***ing know, because people have already spoiled it for me on Twitter. <laughs> Thank you very much, Twitter. But when it happened and happened naturally, I felt this is absolutely, um, it, it just felt just like things were, that that nothing had to be bent, huh, so to speak, to make that happen, that it just like slotted into place. Yeah. I think I think the only thing that holds it back is the limitations they had of yeah. the people breathing down their neck. Basically, I, I think they, there are plenty of clues there. The scene that for me kind of felt like, hang on, there's something more going on here, is the the when the Cora, well, 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 yeah, when Cora reunites with Asami, Asami compliments Cora's appearance, and then Cora blushes. Now, if this was live action, you could say, "Oh, that, that's just a coincidence." This is animation, though. That mm-hmm. blush was very deliberate, and we've already and, had somebody compliment her hair, and she didn't blush. Yeah, and. It's just, it's just, it's the visual language of the show. Every time somebody, somebody blushes, they're either humiliated or they fancy the person they're talking to. Mm. That's the language of the that 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 this series has established so far. It costs a lot to animate blushing. They don't do it accidentally. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's not, it's not. So when people are like, "Well, they didn't give enough clues," I'm like, "Yeah, they did." (laughs) I, I, I think you're seeing what you want to see. Um, or I, I don't know what I'm saying here. It's pretty but... much cemented at the end of season three yeah. when the one person who is there for Cora and sees what she's going through in a way where she kind of wants to say, I want to help you, but what can I do? Tell me what you need right now but you see, is Asami. That's the key thing. That's... But she doesn't pressurise her. Yeah, the, the idea of, um, I mean, like you say, Bolin and Marco, lovely, lovely people, you know, very sweet guys great backup great support but at this point they're not really 
partner material anymore because of what Cora has been through, if nothing else, because Bolin is clueless, largely, and sometimes that's good because sometimes you just want somebody that you can go and hang out with who's not really going to ask you about any of the deep shit. You can just relax with them. And Marco is always going to, I mean, like he says to Cora at the end, he will always have her back and he will always um, help her, but he's going to need her to tell him what needs to be done. And she's not always going to be able to do that. Sometimes what's needed is somebody who will just listen and let you talk through everything and not try to jump in and fix things before you've actually got to the end of what's the problem. Um, and I, for me, one of the key flags was actually the, the, um, the car journey when uh, Asami's mm. trying to teach her to drive because you just have this instant click and they were so relaxed in each other's company, even when they're joking about things that should have been extremely awkward the whole you know what had gone on with marco they're um, uncompetitive yes and they they're able to um to talk to each other in a way that is um not uncomfortable and i think part of this idea that this was a relationship that wasn't signified enough comes from or seems to come from a lot of people who have a very um I don't really want to use the word traditional because that's that's not quite what I mean. But the the dramatically presented teenage relationship is one which is awkward and uncomfortable and um, and very tense and there's an awful lot of passion and drama and things going wrong all the time. But they all get resolved at the end and tied up with a nice happy bow so you can have your nice happy ending. And there's not much of the kind of relationship where actually you didn't see it coming. They were, they, they were your best friend for years. And all of a sudden, one day you just realized every day I spent with this person, I'm happy. I'm, I'm relaxed when I'm not happy. They help me. They support me. Um, we're, we're very, very good for each other. I would really like to do this for the rest of my life. Yeah. And that's a very, um, to me, anyway, uh, a very mature uh, type of relationship that doesn't quite fit with that over-dramatized teenage well, um, thing. Here's the thing. These mm. two aren't teenagers. Oh. Sorry, you, you, you went off. That sounded like a really awesome point. <laughs> yeah. These two aren't teenagers. Oh, awkward. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Josh. Carry on. What Wait, happened? Did, we, did he explode? Did we, did we lose him entirely? <laughs> it's the conspiracy theorists. <laughs> 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 They've killed Josh. Maybe he was shipped off with someone. <laughs> I don't think he's coming back. They just said carry on. He's just going to check what's wrong. Okay. I, su- I, suspect yep, for, I suspect for a lot of viewers as well, there's a little bit of a meta knowledge or not necessarily knowledge but something that you're kind of used to where that sort of relationship is not something you expect to see a kids show do because yeah. it's just not done it, and it's almost never been I can't think of a time it's been done and so it's not necessarily something that you're going to expect or right. somebody or did blurt that out on the forum and unfortunately doing that 
spoils this other show, so I'm not going to do that. But it has been done in another really great animated show that I was following. That's super encouraging to, to hear, actually. But it's just the, the fact That's that it's still am. even for me, like it when uh, it was not something that I ex- saw coming just because it's not something that I had been watching for, just because it was not something that I ever expect to see. And when I did see it, I was surprised, but then immediately thinking back, thought, oh, obviously, obviously. And when watching through it again, I don't know how I could have thought the show could have, like, things could have gone any other way, because it is it is the pairing of characters that makes the most sense when you watch yeah. through it. And it, it seems, yeah. and it seems so stupidly obvious when you watch it through again. Yeah, yeah. yeah I had the exact same reaction, like, it, it's one of those things of when you go back and just re-watch things in context, things make far more sense instead of just reacting like straight off the cuff. Ah, oh, that's so weird. Why they do that? This. It's just like go back and watch it. You are the one who missed things. It's not that they just suddenly shoehorn this in. This makes sense. Josh, I really want to hear what you were going to say. Yeah, <laughs> what you going to say about teenagers? They scare the uh, shit out of you. <laughs> no, um, what I was going to say, it was going on uh, from Sharon's point. She was saying that the show was depicting mm-hmm. a very mature and adult relationship. And here's the thing. These two are adults at this point. They're in their 20s. And I think it's very fitting that the show ends with two adults having a very mature and you know, uncomplicated relationship. It's not. It's not full of all the drama and craziness of a teenage relationship. They're relaxed together. They support each other. They make each other happy, and that's what matters. I think a big part of that as well is when you're when you're in your late teenage years, you're not always. And this is not everybody, because some people do come to this point a lot sooner than others but you're not always entirely sure about who you are so how can you be sure about who someone else is and whether who they are and who you are actually fit together but by the time you've got to the point where you know who you are and you've been through and worked through everything that Cora's worked through um, and you've got more of a sense of, of what your place in the world is, then I think you're, you're much more likely to be ready to make that connection with the person that you want to share that place with. And for me, that end scene um, had me just in a moment of shock not because of what had happened but because they'd been allowed to go through with it i had also seen it coming a long way back but thought they'll never be allowed to to reach that conclusion it would be incredibly awesome if they did but they'll never be allowed to so i was massively impressed that that they had found a way to do it that would be both um both permitted but also didn't seem compromised that was the other thing it didn't seem like they'd had to shave any edges off to get it in there um which was great but also just this this click and there's just this sense of it being right and it i was bawling my eyes out but in a good way I think it's about time that kids were exposed to this content, just same-sex relationships and and all of that, and it just being natural. Um, I I think a lot of the hesitance of exposing children to... um, uh, to homosexuality, to bisexuality, is that 
that th- there is this, and it's not a feeling I share, but it is a feeling that I think certain members of the public feel is that you can't talk about that stuff without talking about sex, and I don't, I don't think that's true. You can depict a romantic relationship between a woman and another woman on a kids' TV show, and not and not have to go any further than that. It's fine. Um, yeah, and, and, and also it, it's one thing to tell an adult that it's okay to be in love with somebody of the same sex. It's something else entirely to tell a child that. Like to have that, you know, to nip the bud before it grows into a weed, if you know what I mean. Like getting that lesson across as early as possible that this is fine and you, you you know it's okay to feel this way if you feel that way if you don't it's fine but don't judge other people for feeling that way um, frankly if kids are watching Cora they're probably not going to grow into such big weeds as the ones who just watch what absolutely. do kids watch that's rubbish these days I mean absolutely I, I, I just I think it's no, I'm, a, I'm totally agree with you. Yeah, it's a it's a big step in the right direction mm, to yeah. talking Absolutely. about this in a really mature, mature way, and and not constantly connecting. Like I, I just I feel like a lot of the conversation around um, exposing kids to this is all got well. If we if you start here, then we'll start showing kids all sorts of rabbit. It's like no, you're it's right. Just, Season five of Corey involves both. Yeah, it's it's not that. It's about accepting, look, romantic love can exist between two people of the same sex. That's all we're trying to say. We're not trying to expose them to uh, whatever you're afraid of, Mr... straw man that I've made up in my head (laughs) Um, (laughs) at least he admits it (laughs) Um, but yeah um, I I, I think it's important and I'm great that this I'm so glad that this season has triggered these kind of discussions Um, in fact I've got a theory that um, the uh, Remembrances episode is so disastrously silly and uh, shallow because it's kind of it's making fun of people who obsess with shipping at least the first two thirds of it seems to be like sort of a, a recap of the uh, Cora Marco Bolin love triangle which um ended up like with with Marco saying you know she inspires me and continues to inspire me which is a lovely thing for a young man to say about a woman yeah. honestly on TV then ends in a, just a fantastic gag from Varick but um but yeah, that, that that whole thing seems to be kind of well, we didn't have much of a budget at all, so let's just address this whole shipping thing, shall we? But in a kind of a sly sideways glance, and here's the thing that really comes out of it. And then at the like at the end, I think Cora's standing with Tenzin and Asami, and you get that real genuine warmth and love and connection between them, and it's, it's almost like right, so the shipping. And then there's the reality of the real stuff and the real, like, people connecting. Not to say in any way that, like, flinging yourself against each other passionately in in a teenage style is not a totally valid path of, what's the word? Rigue de passage, like a Jean Hughes movie. (laughs) Just a Jean Hughes, like he's a French like a Jean Hughes. (laughs) It's a valid feeling and a valid, like, way of expressing those feelings and something that should totally, like... Not like not to be completely dismissive of that, just yeah. because it's something that, that happens that more yeah. when you're younger. 
That was my point. Uh, but the, the 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 tail end of it, it ending in uh, a very kind of much much more um, familial and uh, uh, calmer kind of affection with each other. Is it's a really kind of nice sort of like this is what it's leading up to, folks. If you get things right, yeah. you'll be friends with people who won't require things of you and won't get this super het up over the actual sh- like the the minutia of shipping. Yeah, and and I'm talking from personal experience. I I feel like I did the most growing up between the ages of seventeen and twenty one. So for Cora to go from that kind of crazy, like, I don't know who I really want to be, I don't know who would suit me as a person, to ending with being quite sure of herself and and knowing the kind of person she wants to be with, that makes sense to me, because I've lived that. that. That's what my life has been, like confusion in my teenage years to a bit more clarity, but a lot of doubt as well in my 20s. But, no, um, go on, Sharon. No, you finish. No, I, I was finished, don't worry. Okay, sorry, I thought I'd interrupted you. Um, I was just going to agree. <laughs> um, absolutely, I went through a similar period probably around about the same ages, I would say maybe sort of 18 to 22 for me, but very, very intense period of really making an absolute mess of my attempt at life, but learning so much from it and and being able to proceed from that into a state of, okay, I'm not saying that everything's going to be perfect from here on in, but I kind of know who I am now and I kind of know what skills i've got available to me to deal with what life is going to throw at me from now on a doubt's actually not a bad thing either this is something that a lot of people don't realize there's one emotion that um kavir is lacking and that's doubt she's a very smart person but she's not wise you can't actually have true wisdom without a pinch of doubt you have to not be absolutely sure of everything yeah it's kind of important well, well, you have to look at all the options to have true wisdom. And if you have no doubt, you won't look at all the options. You'll go with the first one because you'll be convinced that that's the way forward. Well, that's the major difference between season one Cora and season four Cora. Mm. Season one Cora is arrogant. She's sure of everything she attempts. Season four Cora is full of doubt. But that doubt actually aids her. It allows her to take different perspectives and understand how other people have come to certain conclusions. She questions herself and others rather than simply attacking others. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Realizing what you don't know is super important for a lot of things. Yeah. Yeah. Lucky... We'll be back next week with part two of the final season of Avatar for the foreseeable future. In the meantime, if you're in the mood for an epic steampunk adventure filled with vibrant and diverse characters, may I recommend my own New Century podcast. Season two launches this week, and the first episode is an excellent jumping off point for newcomers. So right now, jump onto iTunes, find New Century, and click subscribe. Then when you hear the first episode and love it, just as much as I think you're going to, be as vocal about it as possible on the Twitters and the Facebooks. This is the world premiere of the trailer for the first part of Season 2. Cartographer's Secret Rooms. 
there's a point in any discussion I have with a new face that I always look out for. It's when I hit on a subject close to their heart, or I strike at a memory they've been hiding. It's when I have them, and I know they're on board. Be honest with me, please. Am I sending these two to their deaths? I'll keep two eyes on them. You have my word. You memorize the whole book. It is simply the way my mind works, sir. The key must be found, and I was the only one to do it. First I've heard in a pig's age, and I mean precisely that. We had a pig die of old age last year. <laughs> Nobody ever wants to be overt about dropping their guard. Now you best account for yourselves, or you're going to be six different kinds of dead in two seconds. You are talking to four representatives of the reunified state's government. Don't do it. Why not? You'll give away our position. They know where we are. Miss Gray, I would appreciate it if you would let me handle this. Tiny crazy little girl, you're juggling with snakes here. Holy shit. Whoa, that was disgustingly impressive. You can reach out and touch the shadows of that world where things went better. And after your crying is done, the best you can do is learn from your mistakes. I have just one favor to ask. What's that? Do you, by chance... Have a bag of peppermint humbugs upon your person. New Century Secret Rooms. Download the podcast on iTunes. Part 2. I'm hoping that these podcasts will help a lot of people going through the 17 to 21 period. Um, actually, on that note, uh, why does Korra lose the fight with Kavira? It's not just that Kavira suddenly turned into the shadow self. That's simply the culmination of it. Can anyone uh, speculate on this one? She hasn't addressed the real problem. She thinks she has but the metal that she drew out of her body, mm-hmm. that wasn't what was causing her to hesitate. That wasn't mm-hmm. what was causing her to be at her full potential. It was fear that was holding her back. She's afraid of what might happen, what could happen, um, in every fight she's going to have after her encounter with Zaheer. Um, she's letting her doubt control her at this point i i think at least yeah and actually i was trying to work that out how that would key up with her fighting and it keys up with a lot of the way that cora fights she's always been the same kind of bender with every element she yeah. punches with fire and kicks with fire and kicks with air and p- kicks and punches with water in exactly the same way. She has no particular interest. Like her water bending is so fast and aggressive, she doesn't let it flow. And she's never really fought tactically her entire life. So when she fights with Kavira, she's like, I've got a lot of anger. And it's like, no, that's the worst thing. You're going up against an incredibly tactical rock. Yeah. who is also capable of using very flowing, very fast, very precise surgical metal bending. 
the last thing you want to be is attacking her with anger. And if you're attacking her with anger, that's so closely linked with fear. And it kind of explains a lot about how, like, if you're attacking someone and you just go, it's because you're so afraid of getting hit yourself. You just want to just get all of the pounding done. And then hopefully they'll have already dropped and you won't really have to deal with it. Everything about that fight with Kavira should have been watching Kavira, learning from Kavira, and basically adapting herself. She's the goddamn avatar. She can do at least four kinds of bending. Add spirit bending to that. Add metal bending to that. And effectively, she could have countered everything Kavira threw at her, but she charged at her, punching and pounding, as she's always done. It takes her going well it takes her losing and then going to Zaheer to really confront that fear and it changes the way she fights from then on i think there's a combination of reasons for that part of it is that that style which involves being incredibly angry and just throwing your anger into everything and hoping that you will hit the other person with enough to to make them not want to try anymore yeah. that's a child's way of attacking that's a tantrum basically just letting all the energy and frustration that's built up in you just lash out in whatever manner your body sees fit it's a more skillful version of everybody do the doggy paddle extremely fast and turn your head to one side and go forwards Ah, and the other part of it is when you're um when you're trying to do something um with a part of your body or a part of your your mind that's been hurt and you're still not quite sure that it's fully recovered yet which she's not it's relatively recent that she's actually managed to get the last of this metal out the idea that that she has really fully tested herself she's not sure what she can do at this point yeah. and that i think that's part of where the fear comes from this this uh, the freezing up and the post-traumatic flashback that she keeps experiencing mm. is in part this idea that that being in the avatar state is going to hurt her that that doing something which she's not quite sure yet whether she's capable of is going to hurt it's like trying to reach for something with a a, a muscle that until recently was very badly pulled you don't put your arm all the way out because you know or you you still feel that even though you've been told it's healed at some point there's going to be a twinge and it's going to hurt so that's kind of what I see her as, as holding back from because the being in the avatar state is now so associated with that extreme pain for her that she's terrified of going back into it again because she thinks it will all it'll all flare up again. So she's kind of only fighting with three quarters of what she's got. She doesn't want to reach out for anything else in case it hurts. And I think that's part of why um, her learning the metal bending was so important because yeah, all right, she can still pick up great big pieces of metal and throw them at people just as if they were rocks, the same as she has with everything else. But particularly getting the metal out of herself and Toph insisting that she do it herself, that is a style of bending that she has never done before. But she can't do this thing without it. 
she's got to to relax and use those flowing motions that she normally avoids like the plague. She has no choice. That's the only way she can get that metal out of her. So that is a turning point. But as we've already said, like with everything else, in this instance and everything surrounding her recovery from trauma, it's not a case of somebody tells her the right way to do it and then everything's fine. It's got to be done piecemeal. It's it's always a case of um, it's partially healed, but this is something that I'm going to have to come back to later. Uh, yeah. So, you must really be in trouble if you came all the way down here to see me. I came here to look you in the eye and tell you that you have no power over me. I will no longer be scared of you. <laughs> I guess it didn't work. You still seem scared. This was a mistake. I know why you're here. You don't know anything about me. You can't go into the spirit world. Zahir. This scene blew me away. No pun intended. Yeah. I, I was saying when we saw it again yesterday, I've never seen this before. When he takes her back to the point when he uh, grabs her head in an air bubble and starts to suck the breath out of her. And she's obviously um, very, very upset by it to being brought back there forcibly. And he says, that time's passed, move beyond it. I've never seen an antagonist or a villain helping the hero to psychologically overcome the fear of their last encounter. That's never been done. And a, here, and a antagonist character who has not completely like, uh, been reformed and changed their ways. He still he hasn't changed his tune. He still firmly believes in his vision for the world. And he regrets that his effort to achieve that vision pushed it even yeah. further from the ideal he wanted. And he created a vacuum that Kavira stepped in to fill. But he tries to never, make amends. But yeah, yeah. He's never held a personal grudge against Korra and their goals a line at this point. So he is more than happy to try to heal, try to help her get past this and help with her recovery, which makes for this really fascinating scene that you're right. I've don't think I've seen anywhere else. I mean, I I said he's, this is, I've never seen this in a villain. No way. Antagonist. No way. Character. Cause he wasn't antagonizing her. I mean, he's, he's, he's making things happen for her, but he, he becomes, the wizard at that point, he becomes the sage and uh, it's an, in- like an incredible like sidestep into something which totally fits who he is. Yeah. I have seen it before, but I can't remember which anime it was. Oh, that's the only thing. Sorry. Sharon was going to say something. Oh yeah. Hang on a minute. I can't remember what it was. It sort of, it's sort of in um, the promise, uh, isn't it, um, Jerome? When Zuko goes to see his father, and yeah. his father makes him confront his personal demons regarding his mother, and what's the, the, his fears that he will become his father. father yeah. Again, that would have been fascinating to see. I suspect that part of the reason why it's not. A circumstance that you see very often is that it is a very specific scenario in which that could be done. I mean, first of all, it's not often that antagonists get to stick around after the end of the big boss battle. 
Yeah. Most of the time, they're either dead or at least gone in some permanent way. Um, secondly, the idea in anything that's being done more realistically that the person who caused you to experience such great trauma might in any way be able to help you get through it has to be handled extremely cautiously. Otherwise, it's, I think, in danger of walking over the experience of the trauma in the first place. Because unless you can make it very clear that the the person who previously was the antagonist has now become very detached from the emotions and the, uh, the feelings that caused them to do that in the first place, their behavior is always going to be suspect. Zaire was in no position to be able to or even want to control Cora anymore. And I think that was very, very important. He, he does show a degree of remorse for his actions. The, the moment where Cora says, you know, you resulted in one of the worst dictators the Earth Kingdom has ever seen. Thanks for that. His little dip of the head and like his, his expression on his face like communicated so much more than Zahir could ever say aloud. Mm. He, he does feel responsible for what has occurred. He does feel like he has propped up K- Kavira and in his, in a, in his attempts to create his, you know, perfect <clears throat> utopia, his worldview, he's actually created like his vision of hell, basically. Yeah. Um, Kavira, control. Yeah. yeah, Kavira represents everything, everything that Zahir stand against, stands against, and he helped raise her to that level of power. Mm. I, I think also <clears throat> impo- it's important to mention that a lot of villains, and, um, and, and Avatar has been guilty of this in the past, it's very easy to explain... Uh, negative behavior, negative actions uh, through simply saying somebody's a psychopath or somebody's insane. Zaheer is not uh, any of those things. He is a rational man. He he is an extremist, but he is not without logic, without seeing reason, and he can be talked to. And I've, I've, the reason why you can have this scene with uh, Zaheer is because of that. He's not like Azula, who's hell-bent on, you know, uh, destroying memories of her mother and, and what have you, or like Ozai, who I, I'm pretty sure is just a sociopath. Um, Zaheer believes in something, and when when Korra... Uh, Cora and his uh, views kind of align. He's able to see that and capitalize on it. And the fact that Zahir is a rational human being means that you can have this scene. But it's all this potential out there. But like I said, it's it's never been done. And I'd like to see more humanized antagonists in the future. Yeah. We're, we're definitely moving in that direction. I think the the ages of uh, like Varric's version of Unalok is now so far in the past that uh, it has become comedic. And so when, you know, people like the Red Skull turn up, it feels like an antique. I think part of that is going to come through heroes who treat the antagonists or villains as they're sort of still being portrayed in a lot of things in a human way. 
because as long as you still have heroes who think that the bad guys all need to be um, destroyed and crushed and um, ended and locked up and not treated with even a scrap of um, uh, dignity or <clears throat> understanding, then it doesn't make any sense for your antagonist or your villain to behave in a, a multidimensional human way. Yeah. I spend most of my time in the spirit world and it's well known that the Avatar spirit hasn't been there for a few years. You can meditate into the spirit world from here? Doesn't feel very spiritually charged. This is your problem. Republic City is flowing spiritual energy and you can't even tap into it. No, my problem is you. You poisoned me. You ruined me! People used to think I was unstoppable, but now they don't think I'm capable of anything! Blaming me is a crutch to make you feel better, but it's not helping you recover. I thought seeing you face to face would put an end to all of this. But maybe it's time I realize I'll never be the same. Neither of us are the same as before. I learned to fly, but now I'm bound in chains. You have all the power in the world and the freedom to use it, but you choose to hold yourself down. I'm not holding myself down, but my powers have limits. You're wrong. That poison should have killed you, but you were able to fight it off. You think your power has limits. I say it's limitless. Whatever. Before, you were always talking about chaos and freedom. Then you took out the Earth Queen and created the worst dictator the Earth Kingdom has ever seen. Thanks for that! I've heard rumors about her, but I didn't know she achieved so much power. She needs to be stopped. Well, I can't stop her unless I get over this block. I think I can help. Let me lead you into the spirit world. No way. I can't trust you. Maybe not. But if you had any other options, you wouldn't be here now, would you? We may have been enemies once, but for now, our interests align. I've come this far. What have I got to lose? Focus on the sound of my voice and clear your mind. <laughs> Let it play out. I can't! You can. Accept what happened to you. Don't fear what might have been. I have no control! Don't be afraid. Hold on! me here. Do you know where Janora and the others are? No, but you do. Rava, I missed you. Where have you been? I have always been inside of you. So betrayal. This is uh, Varric. Uh, would, you, would we say that Varric betrayed the rest of the kingdom by working for Kuvira? No. I no? think it, he was looking to create a new source of energy. Yeah. Like he he went into it similar to Bolin, thinking I'm going to make things right. Okay, yeah. So he went in with the best intentions, as uh, as did Kavira. Although she, um, um, it was gradually a case of her moving the line back until she was committing atrocities. Actually, she doesn't commit atrocities. She doesn't like murder people in the, the thousands, but she certainly opens fire on a lot of people just to test weapons and to make her point. 
I'm, I continuously admire what they're able to do in this show rather than just killing. The, uh, the point where um, uh, Cora gets Batar Jr. and rather than like threatening him or torturing him, she does threaten him, but she threatens him with basically, uh, I, will, I will take you away and keep you away from Kavira for the rest of your life. A very um, psychologically... Uh, What's the word? A very personal kind of threat rather than just pain, death and destruction. They do achieve a great deal with just threat. Because you say about Kavira doesn't commit atrocities. She never has to follow through with any in this because she threatens a couple of times and people cave, which is exactly what she wants. So we we never have to see what happens when somebody resists her to the point of forcing her hand. That's the way she'd see it, forcing her hand and making her do something terrible. Now look what Um, you do. Exactly. But she certainly threatens enough. Um, I mean, she has all those... One of the first things we see her do is basically pin all those so-called bandits to the railway line and threaten to just walk off and leave them there until a train comes along and kills them all. But that threat and then having that acquiesced to Mm. each time kind of makes the point that we didn't need to show it, folks. She would no, have done it. exactly. And the, the fact that they don't need to show it and the fact that they actually follow through on deaths so rarely means that when they're with Polly, that the impact is massive because it's not disposable. It's not something that's happening left, right and centre and, and just, you know, people being thrown around like sacks of spuds. I, I really liked the fact that in the big... Uh, showdown in Republic City they make this big deal about everybody's been evacuated which then allows them to demolish buildings with impunity and you know there's nobody in there that's in any danger because we know they got everybody out Unlike that Man happened, of Steel. I was going to say, that didn't happen in Man of Steel but it did happen in the 1998 Godzilla mm. <laughs> Look to Godzilla for your inspirations <laughs> I get the sense with Varric that he saw I mean, he's still a business guy, even if he's just somewhat reformed, and I get the sense he saw an opportunity to get in on the ground floor of the future of the Earth Kingdom. And I mean he's got a limit to how far he's gonna go now. So as soon as Kavira tries to make him do something that he knows is a disastrous, horrible idea, he won't do it. But I still get the sense that that's probably why he originally decided to leave Zafu, join up with Kavira on their way out. He saw a, lot, a good business opportunity. And Bolin loves Varric, so taking a job from Varric is not hard, a huge stretch. And Bolin's not hard to manipulate anyway. But an unfortunate side effect of being a thoroughly good person who tries to see the best in everybody is that you really risk being taken advantage of by the worst people a lot. Yeah. Varric says it to himself um, when he's told to continue with the weapon project he says i know i'm surprised too like normally i'd totally be up for this oh create a, a big new weapon yeah i'm totally down for that but for some reason something's telling me not to do that <laughs> i know the it's head weird, voices, right? i must listen to them <laughs> yeah. one of the things i noticed about uh again the the visual language that the animators use in this uh clothing most characters wear the same outfit the whole way through and only change it during very significant 
moments. So with Cora particularly, she wears her same Water Tribe outfit through most of the, the show. Um, she wears an airbending outfit or an air nomad outfit very uncomfortably, I might add, when she's trying to train in airbending and not doing very well. Then she has obviously the, the ceremonial clothes that she changes into, but there is a very significant uh, image change when she disappears in, season, in episode two. Uh, Varric changes his clothes all the time. He has different outfits constantly, and it does give you that feeling that he basically goes whichever way the wind blows. He will literally take whichever path is of the most benefit to him in any one given moment. Um, and I think that gave weight to him needing to have that very humorous scene of saying, this is really unusual for me. I don't know what's going on because otherwise it's like that is massively out of character for him. We need to know why that's happening. I love his new gimmick of trying to coin his name as verbs and units of measure. Just oh, God, yes. <laughs> that's 20 barracks there. Just whatever happened to that guy? Oh, he varicked himself because some girls you lead him. That's what I've been trying to say for six minutes. <laughs> That's my fa- second favorite Varric line in the whole series. My favorite is, what? No, honey, we're in a bear, for God's sakes. <laughs> yeah. That's my favorite. But uh, he yeah, say the- something about Julie weigh- weighing three Julie? Yes, <laughs> yeah. it's a spirit vine uh, that weighs the, uh, the same as three Julie. Oh, that was She's it, just yeah. lugged it across the floor. Julie, not only with her betrayal coming seemingly out of nowhere and then obviously being the reversal, but then really stepping up and actually taking control of not only her own character, but actually being a a protagonist in the show, was a really welcome, really wonderful moment. uh, uh, When when she basically breaks at Varric and she's angry with him, but at the same time it's very clear that she does genuinely care about him. It kind of explains her character actions for the entire series, seasons from two onwards uh, and all the way back. But at the same time, it lays down another example of a relationship that can exist and be balanced without having to conform to absolutely perfect normative standards. And it's clear that while it was not particularly fantastic work for her... She has, I suppose, like pepper pots her way up through the years. Like Julie herself, herself hasn't had to change at all. All that really will have to happen is that Varric basically starts treating her like a proper person. Yeah. Yeah. But Julie's going to be more vocal about that. Yeah. But it, the way that she came out, it didn't seem like she was battered or abused over the years. Just that Varric hadn't even considered it. Yeah. Just that she needed, that there was a light that wasn't on in his head and she needed to manually flick that switch. Yeah. Varric's crime in their relationship is a lack of appreciation. Yeah. And, uh, and one, one of the things I was going to say quite a while ago, and, but it's relevant here, uh, one of the big themes of season four is acknowledging that people change and you can acknowledge that and forgive them for their sins but also that they can 
um, you know, make recompense for what they've done in their past. And, and and there are several examples. Varric is one of them. Somebody who changes and makes recompense for the the sins of their past. Zahir is another one. Uh, another character we're going to get onto later is Hiroshi, um, who who committed some horrible acts in season one, but goes a long way to trying to make recompense for what he did. Um, I, I love seeing that all the way through this, this season of seeing characters who have done terrible things, but acknowledging that realizing it and trying to, you know, trying to heal the wounds that they've caused. I, I, it was you don't like like you said with Zahir, you don't see that often with movies and television. You don't see antagonist antagonists get the chance to fix what they caused. They um, frequently have to be punished with death or um incarceration just so that they're out of the picture. They're out of the picture either way. This so rooted in just the the notion, the laughable notion that you can't just hire the same actor again for a bit. <laughs> it's like, why not have the Penguin come back in uh, back, Batman 3 and say, yeah, sorry about that whole kidnapping all the kids of Gotham uh, thing. And, uh, like, you know, have them, uh, again, I keep going back to Batman, possibly just because that feels like the most villain of the week comparison, you know? I don't know, but maybe Batman's a bad example because he has this great rogues gallery. But uh, actually, no. Actually, other way round. Batman has somehow managed to carry on for decades, and all of the villains are just as insane as they've ever been. They never change around. Very, very rarely. Like when when uh, uh, an interesting writer comes on board, they'll go right. I'm going to uh, uh, make this character uh, give him a turnaround. But most of the time, villains stay villains. That's just how it works. Varric's spirit vine self-destruct gambit is maybe his best scene in the whole series, and that's saying something. Another reason, of course, that the Varric and Julie dynamic exists is to give us absolutely a totally valid hetero relationship being seen as this is absolutely a way it can go for people. It's wonderful. It's lovely. You get a wedding. Everybody cries. Everybody's assembled. Everybody's celebrating it. It's great. Here's your hetero. Now we're going to move sideways and over here, oh, you'll find a relationship that's pretty much exactly the same. There's a slight difference in chromosomes. Yeah. And it's basically one of these things is just like the other. Here you go, kids. And it's not rubbing it in, but it's there. Uh, let's talk about Hiroshi, actually, because, again, that kind of links back to Asami. Um, and uh, th- th- anybody notice who Hiroshi now in this slightly more uh, haggard and bearded state looks remarkably like? Um, a certain legendary animator by the name of Hayao Miyazaki. No. <laughs> Has he watched Legend of Korra or, or Legend of Ang? Has he seen, like, the six-armed... Um, Yes, flying bison and gone that's a bit like cat bus does he know he must know you'd have to ask him <laughs> I will I will <laughs> next time we have him on 
<sighs> but yeah, the, the adoration for his stuff is so brilliant that when he actually turns up, um, sorry, he, it's not him. It's a character who looks like him, Hiroshi. There's a uh, uh, lovely, peaceful um, uh, Chayo Noburo. What's the name of that uh, artist who does all of the Miyazaki films? Joe Hisayashi. Joe Hisayashi. Lovely kind of Joe Hisayashi uh, music suddenly plays. Uh, it's, it's reverent. It's almost like they've got the guy himself there, which helps within just a few moments for people who are animation junkies immediately start to uh, warm back to Hiroshi and, uh, and, and feel on side with Asami for actually letting him back into her life. I, I think also there's... Because he's lost so much weight and his yeah. hair is grey, you get a feeling that he's suffered. And he whatever sins he's committed, he's more than, you know, served his time uh, for what he's done. Mm. And he's he's very sad and, and downbeat in every scene he's in, right up until his final scene. Um, he hasn't got the energy or charisma he used to have that uh, that he definitely had in season one. Um, he's lost all that. He's lost his ego. He's lost his the, his pride. The the big wall he put around himself, like you know the 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 big show that was him being the captain of captain of industry. He he's worn away, and all that you're left with is the man at the core of who he is. Um, and he's sad and depressed and, and desperately wants to make amends with the one positive thing he has left in this world. He's also lost uh, another thing, the, uh, the emotion that Amon was able to twist in uh, book one to, uh, to get the funding he needed, his anger. Yeah. He was uh, angry at Benders because his wife was killed by a firebender. And uh, that's, that's the... Um, as we established in, in that, that podcast, that was the button that Amon pressed. So yeah, his sacrifice when they're uh, taking down the Colossus feels like uh, a very very peaceful, very um, mature decision to, to make at that time, rather than a sort of you know, hot-headed in the moment, I'm totally going to do this thing. And it, it's, it's done in pure love and determination. It's yeah. a wonderful moment. And it's great to see them starting up with the pie show again, because uh, it's well, it's been a hallmark of the series. I think wasn't um, Uncle playing Pie Show in like maybe the first episode? I believe so. Yeah, yeah. yeah. When it shows Zuko on the ship, he's playing Pie Show with some yeah. ship crewmates. And then I think it, like one of the first MacGuffins for him is he loses a piece and has to go searching for some, but then finds a Sungi horn. Yep. Oh, I love this series so much. I don't want to say goodbye. Um, Team Beifong patching things up, just in terms of like you know tying in with the paternal reconnection. The the scene with Lin and um, and Toph, yeah. uh, uh, where they're talking uh, around the fireplace. It, I I was surprised how subtle they were with a lot of Toph's expressions in that scene, yeah. um, because Toph never says what she's actually feeling all yeah. the way through that scene. But the vocal performance and the animation is so good that you know exactly how she, the, the, that sigh she gives just mm. before she says, "Well, if that's what that's you want, make you happy." Yeah. That, you can tell that's not what she really wants to say. She wants to say, I love you. 
And I, I really, and it really hurts me that you hate me this much. And and she gets to say that later on, but um, yeah, it was a remarkable piece of subtlety there with that scene. Um, and uh, uh, Mindy Sterling's performance as Lynn, I, I don't think she gets enough uh, praise. Actually, Mindy Sterling is one of the best vocal performances in the Legend of Korra. Like she, she. You know, every line she delivers, she delivers with conviction, and and she, I really, I felt for her, and I really felt for her in, the, in that scene, and um, and 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 the just kind of the dismissiveness that um, Toff has about the subject of her father, you completely understand how angry Lynn is in that moment, and and how frustrating it is for somebody to treat something that you consider to be so important and so meaningful to who you've become, for that to just be dismissed as like a small detail in your life. I think one of the things that makes it so impressive is that... If portraying more than one emotion at the same time through your face and your body language when you're acting is difficult, and it is, I'll be honest, there are less actors out there who are capable of doing it than there really ought to be. I'd I'd say it's a pretty fundamental skill to acting, but there seems to be an awful lot of people out there who can't do it. Um, Doing it purely with your voice is nigh on impossible, but she manages it. Yeah. A lot of excellent voice performances in the whole Bay Fong family uh, cast. Yeah. Also between Anne Heche and uh, who's, who is it that's doing Toph's older voice that is totally capturing, it still absolutely feels like Toph, but, and Opal as well. Just three generations of great vocal performance in the Bay Fong mm. family. Anne Heche, I have to say, I've never been particularly impressed with her in the past, but my God, she was fantastic as Su Yin. Yeah. She really was. To to manage to evoke a character who seems incredibly sympathetic and incredibly kind and yet is one of the most infuriating human beings that I have ever had to witness, that's impressive. That's really, really good. <laughs> I was just looking for actors. Actor, Toph. John DiMaggio? <sighs> Wait, what? I'm tough because it sounds like tough. Oh, okay. <laughs> Ember Island players tough. Okay, right. Uh, Kate Higgins plays tough Bayfong as an adult. I don't think they mean old tough, elderly tough. Phyllis Sampler. Huh. Um, yeah, extremely. Um, I just must have watched Jessie Flowers do her thing and gone right. I'm fairly certain I can get this one licked. I think just just the way that um, we leave Toph on two occasions, one where she's walking back into her house uh, and, um, uh, you know, that they, they've sort of left her in the swamp, and two when things are sort of patched up and she's like, my back's killing me, you got to leave it to the kids and walks away. Uh, both occasions it feels like, um, well, well, mainly we're, we're saying goodbye to, uh, to that side of uh, Avatar again. And, um, but there's a sense that, you know, it's okay that there, there's a uh, there's a natural. So, as much as, she, as she's incredibly abrasive and uh, you know, in many ways, downright unpleasant, there's something very embracing of nature about Toph. She may 
talk a big talk, but she's hanging out in a swamp and getting very spiritual about vines. She's very connected, and I think that's one of the other important things about Cora meeting her at that particular juncture is that she feels she's lost her connection with this world that she's supposed to be the avatar of. And Toph doesn't exactly teach her but literally shows her in the way that she's living and the way that she's experiencing life at this point how to get that connection back again uh there's a scene where uh toff i think dismissively mentions that uh lynn and uh company are angry that she left but she feels them all the time through the the vines the idea being she hasn't left. As far as she's concerned, she's still watching them. She's still right there. But they're angry because they're not that connected and they don't have that. And she's, again, kind of taking that for granted. But at the same time, there's a, like, like I said, there's a, everything about Toph suggests the, uh, the simple acceptance that things are as they are. It's the opposite of running away from death and trying to be pretty for your entire immortal life. <laughs> Yeah, I I do get the sense Toph is very happy out there. Yeah, getting just kind of be as she often likes to be, even when she was young, just looking after herself. Yeah, Uh, she can still be seeing where, keeping tabs on everything that's happening and seeing her family and knowing what's going on. But uh, she's getting to just she's getting to just be Toph out in the swamp. Mythically speaking, to compound the idea that everything's natural, it's almost as though she's always been there. Because if you remember the first time Ang ever encountered her, it wasn't actually her. It was like a imprint of Toph that was in the swamp before uh, he met her. Yeah. yeah. Remember? Yeah. So it's almost like she's destined to be there and to be part of that swamp. Well, mm. she's, a, she's a feet in the earth kind of person, isn't she? So she's probably had that connection with the earth since the Badger Moles first taught her to earthbend but i mean she she sums up this personification of the crone so so marvelously and that's part of the the archetype of the crone is this idea that in order to be in a position to have accumulated all of this wisdom and have the time to dispense it you have to have detached from your family a little bit you you know if you've had children they have to be grown up and gone if you had uh, a partner they have to be deceased or at least the very least not around anymore to make demands on your time you know if you're going to be an elder that people can come to and, and lean on for support then you have to have kind of um moved As the guru away would say, from, to give up all of those exactly give up the yeah. the um the worldly attachments yeah it seems like you're enjoying having someone around to beat up an awful lot yeah the swamp benders out here really can't take a punch so what made you want to drop out and disconnect from the rest of the world? I'm more connected to the world than you've ever been. The roots and vines, they run all over the world. I can see Sue and Lin, Zalfu and Republic City. I see everything. <laughs> You're blind compared to me. I love Sue Yin's fighting style. Mm. Yeah, because she yeah. Because she moves like a dancer, which is unlike most, I think, any of the metal benders in the rest of the series, because 
Lin's metal bending is a lot is a lot like earth bending, really. It's really direct and brute force. And Kavira is really economical and precise um, and almost entirely using the metal she wears as offensive projectiles. Su Yin tends to be really creative and improvisational. Like yeah. yeah, with the way that she uses metal, like like an artist would be, because she really seems like the artist type of character. She will yeah. whip up a quick suit of armor in seconds using the metal around her. Or the way she takes out Pali using her chest plate is brilliant and clever and, and improvisational. And she gets some of the best fights in the series, even though they're usually pretty short. And her brief duel with Kavira actually on the spirit cannon is one of my favorite fights in the whole series. Yeah. Well, one of, one of the things uh, Cora uh, does especially well is convey personality through fight sequences. Yeah. It, it, like, like what Danny was saying, you, you get a sense of who these people are by the way they fight. Like, Kuvira is very um, pragmatic and economical, whereas Su Yin is more improvisational. Um, but the same with Cora. Uh, Cora is a blunt instrument most of the time, using her anger to just directly punch people until they stop trying to punch her. <laughs> <laughs> but then, but then you see Toph. Don't you punch me? I'll punch you six times. But or, you know, Toph's fighting style has always been about waiting for the the other person to make the first move right from the first scene we get of her in the original series to here she never instigates the attack with Cora she always reacts to what Cora's doing and then attacks um mm. that kind of choreography having character in mind when you construct action sequences um is something hollywood uh, Hollywood movies really need right now because I am so sick of buildings exploding and and what have you and just senseless gunfights. I like I really do like action when it's done well and I I just I want it to be done in the same way that this series approaches it, adding personality and communicating character through action sequences instead of it just being an excuse for bright colors to be on screen. It has to mean something. It yeah. has to there there has to be a stake in that action scene for it to register anything with you. I I agree with you 110% on this Josh. I am for me part of it is that um a, a, an empty action sequence that is purely about visual flair and um evoking and then sustaining an adrenaline rush leaves me utterly utterly cold. I'm partly convinced that there is something wrong with my adrenaline reactions because when I watch something um, like, I, I don't know, giant twisty metal robots whirling all across the scene... It's with... because you're a girl. Is it, though? Is it? No, it's no, not. It's, right. it's not. I, I'm, I was bored shitless it, by the Transformers film. But you definitely. see, this is the thing. You you were just bored. It makes me feel sick. Physically sick. It makes me feel <laughs> nauseous. Um, because when it, it evokes my adrenaline, oh, by God, does it get my adrenaline running. But that is something that leaves me feeling incredibly uneasy and uncomfortable, and it's not something that I enjoy in any way. So if an action scene is going to do that one way or another, if you have people within that action scene who are interacting in a similar way as they would in, say, for example, a dialogue scene, then there is somewhere for that adrenaline to go for me. It, it is 
um, it, it, I suppose it's given an opportunity to trigger off different sets of emotions because then there's other things that are wound in with what's going on on screen. I, I <clears throat> can see where that fight is going to take them. I can um, try and understand what impact it's having on the people involved rather than just going, well, that flash was really, I don't know, good. Yeah, a proper action sequence is made up of story beats just like a story sequence is because mm. that's what gets you heavily involved. You're you are not strictly excited by and engaged by the impressiveness of the choreography and the action and the explosions. It's what they mean for the characters you're watching. You're watching the the shift of who is on top in this fight and who is who has the upper hand getting passed back and forth constantly and oh no the character i care about is in trouble oh he got free now he seems to have the upper hand but oh no he's about to get attacked by this other person to the side and he's trying to defend this other person over here and you're it's all very quick story beats happening in succession that's making you care about what's happening and the and that's i think part of what makes almost all of the big fights and the choreography in this series so great but particularly in the last few episodes of book three and a lot of the battles happening, you always know what's at stake. You always know what the geography of the scene is, where everybody is. You see what you know what each action and attack means for the characters in that scene and how they're and the new problems it creates for them that they have to overcome and the new puzzles and questions being thrown at them that they have to resolve. And like that's how a good action scene comes together. If it's just a whole lot of flash and stuff flying everywhere, but you can't follow it or it doesn't ever seem to show much of a change in power or uh or a lot of the star star wars prequels lightsaber fights as flashy and as impressive as they are a lot of them don't show a whole lot of shifting in that power between the characters it's a lot of just impressive fight impressive fight impressive fight impressive fight finally it's over and somebody won oh actually i was watching your um video on uh narrative villains and mechanics villains and this is as it applies to video games and I, I commented to Sharon, as you were saying it, Darth Maul's a mechanics villain. All yeah. he shows us is how to do swishy lightsaber fighting. He does not serve the plot in any way in The Phantom Menace. Yeah. In it's, any way. It's true. I mean, and spectacle has value as well, especially when it's paired with a well-told story inside an action <laughs> scene. Like, Well, that's The Phantom Menace out. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. <laughs> But yes, yeah, I think the villain is in that stupid thing. It's Palpatine. Thank <laughs> you very much, Dan, for putting that far more eloquently than I did. But, but yes, and the and part of that comes about as well. I think when you you know who's going to win, you know the hero in this particular scene is not going to come out of this uh, defeated. And and Corey, you're not so sure exactly because there's no death, and so you're like, you know, that they could be defeated, and what's then going to happen? Yeah. Exactly, and it's it's the subsequent consequences that come as a result of that that are, are what's going to keep your interest sustained. <laughs> Will Shia LaBeouf die? Tune in next second in Transformers: <laughs> The Fifteen-Hour Attrition War. <laughs> right. <laughs> Speaking of giant fighting robots, 
taking down the Colossus, we don't have to talk about this in any particular uh, um, length. Uh, anime fans, uh, what did this mech resemble most to you, if, if anything? Um, nothing really. Um, it was actually quite unique. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> It kind of felt like... Um, it went bois a lot. It did go bois. Uh, Korra season two, book two, had introduced bois to the Four Nations and then it went away for a season and then it came back. Um, but it, it felt like the giant if it didn't have a mind or a soul yeah, from the Iron Giant. The, yeah. uh, there's just that nature of a, a walking gun. That's all it is. It's just a fancy way of, of holding this enormous cannon. It's, it felt like... Almost, I, I muttered this when uh, Kavira was piloting it, she can't handle the neural load. To be in control of that effectively makes you that enormous, towering, walking uh, robot. The, in actuality, what that would really do to a person would require more psychological, like, like getting used to it, than Kavira allows herself. She basically is stomping down the street like it's her stomping down the street shooting things she goes like she she has no concept really of the damage she's really doing to real people at that stage and it is essentially her as a character and also represents the also the full force basically of her army if you look at the rest of that battle the rest of her army almost has no presence in it at all you'll see some smaller Mm. robots stomping around and a few soldiers go in and try to attack or capture a couple individuals but mostly you see a huge force march into this march up to republic city and it's basically just the robot that attacks which is when you've when you've got a budget like they do and you've already been had one episode's worth of budget trimmed out that they had to make up for elsewhere it's a very good economical way of representing the strength of kavira's force coming in and attacking the city and fighting that off without having to have a Lord of the Rings army, yeah, yeah, like huge battle. Yeah. Yeah. See, they they cement the thought that this is Kavira's talkers. If you remember in the first um, uh, series Avatar, whenever you had big ma- machinery like big vehicles, yeah. it, it showcased like all the people inside of it working together just to make this thing move. Whereas they've they just constantly show Kavira there at the command center, move, yeah. metal bending this massive thing. It's as if, like, she doesn't really. They, they. It sort of gets across that she doesn't need anybody else there. Like, they're yeah. just there to make sure things go the way she wants them to. But she'd be perfectly fine by herself working this machine. At which end, what she really like? She's she's fighting for an ideal. But if she's no longer got the people with her, then what's this war really about? Yeah. And I, sp- I suppose that's why, like, I I haven't really connected it with any other, like, Robert designs, because normally when when a series has a role, they try to give it a bit of personality, but this is yeah. just a straight-up tool of vehicle. Yeah, well, it's a suit. I, I mean, I think the obvious allegory here, uh, and kind of the reason why I think the robot doesn't doesn't have a personality is that it it, it is an allegory for the atom bomb um mm. 
the the scenes with Varric and um, Batar Jr. scream the Manhattan Project for me. Uh, something you know, this mysterious substance that we don't really understand. We kind of wanted to make it into an energy source, but we pushed it too far and t- created this you know, horrendous weapon that doesn't require an army to level a city. Mm. Um, yeah, it, 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 it kind of, the robot kind of represents the cold, emotionless, you know, completely devoid of humanity, uh, kind of concept of the atom bomb. Uh, this thing that can just be triggered and end so many lives without even, you know, you know, just without any thought or any kind of hesitation. Jerome, you were talking about Kavira being in complete control. I would argue that the the ultimate uh, message of uh, the, the, these final episodes is Kavira doesn't really have any control over yeah. what she's doing. You never had control. That's the illusion. Yeah. Yes, yes she's surrounded herself with the illusion of control, making, yeah. to, making sure to keep anything that doesn't keep that that illusion going out of sight. Yeah, but yeah, and and that final scene with her, with the you know beside the giant cannon, trying to kill Cora, and then suddenly realizing, and you know the panic goes across her face, suddenly realizing I have no idea what I'm doing. Uh, I've unleashed this awesome force, and I have no idea how to control it. Yeah, again, she never really seems to hate Cora, but uh, like. It's it's that she only because she only has those two modes. She only really knows how to react by threatening and threatening and threatening, and then eventually she's like, "Well, you forced me to keep going," and she's never had to keep going. Yeah. So she kind of, I think, she ends up frightening herself in in terms of that um, the energy she's unleashing. She doesn't. Yeah, as you say, she never had the control, and she. Um, uh, effectively, if all you know how to do is. Um, push and threaten and then you have to keep unleashing you don't actually have the control and <laughs> keep going back to the same thing and you never did yeah she seems like the more she's pushed and resisted she just gets tunnel vision toward victory and she will and she's just pushing toward winning no matter what like just at the point where she has she's in the woods with the broken cannon aimed at Cora, like Shooting Cora with the cannon isn't really the victory she came to this city to win, but mm. at that point, it is what like, registers in her mind as this is like it's just not beating losing. you. Is yeah, and just, I'm not losing. Yeah, I've encountered people before who would rather not lose than <sighs> who would rather everybody loses than anybody wins. Yeah. Mm. Then anybody who's not them wins. Yeah, it's a it's a difficult it's a difficult situation to overcome and to 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 confront. Um, there are two situations of control uh, before this uh, where people give their lives. Um, Hiroshi uh, has absolutely every opportunity to pull out and uh, and and try another tactic, but he. Uh, gives up his life and, and makes sure that Asami is safe uh, because it's the best way forward. I love the way that he uh, uses the analogy of we have to be uh, like a, a, a virus and attack its system um, like it's a body and uh, that's, that's a, it's a brilliant way of uh, looking at their tactics but Marco as well 
The fact that Bolin saves him at the last second is kind of by the by. Marco sacrificed himself, mm. yeah. which is it's a wonderful moment. Uh, this is some of the best music in the series as well, by the way, yes. the, uh, the, the Colossus yes. bit. Absolutely. I swear, at the point when uh, Marco decides, yeah, I'm going to do this, the music goes... And it almost goes... Listen out for it next time. It's everybody wants to rule the world. But yeah, the, the whole, like, from the moment they get into the Colossus, that just the music swells up. It's fantastic. I, can't, I really hope that we get um, at least one more chorus soundtrack, even if it's just a medley of the different uh, tracks throughout series two through four. Uh, track track teams work throughout this entire series has been phenomenal. Absolutely and, phenomenal. And but not only that, uh, I'm continually impressed with how in sync they are with the animation on screen. Because mm. you were talking about the music, it's powerful because it so perfectly matches what's going on on screen. It's not just great music; it's music that understands what needs to be conveyed in every scene it's used in. Mm. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm just I I can't wait to see what the, uh, track team do uh, do next. I hope they find a new project to work on, and I I eagerly await to see what it is because those those guys are phenomenal. Yeah. Okay, so the, I suppose the final bit is um, Kavira being Kara's dark potential. We've already mentioned this, I think, once at least. Um, somebody theorized way back in uh, season two I think it was that uh, the antagonist moving forward might actually be Korra herself and they've done in a really neat way they, they pretty much managed to show what Korra would be like if she sought control against all else yeah and um, there's just that wonderful moment where they're in the spirit realm and Korra's looking at herself and She's in, I think, she's in blue, and uh, and Kavira's in in uh, magenta, and then the Korra that's in magenta materializes into Kavira. It's it's made as as plain as it can, it can be that um, there were points along her journey up to now where she could have pushed, and and has and possesses such awesome power. That she had the ability to do what Kavira did. Yeah. It's a warning. Absolutely. And and the reason why Cora does not end up being Kavira is because she becomes self-aware of her flaws and and her and her idiosyncrasies. Um, her journey is about learning what her shadow self is capable of mm. but not you know not trying to exercise that part of her you know not trying to get rid of that but embracing it but also 
keeping a, a keeping a tight wrap on it, making sure it doesn't get the better of her, mm. using it in situations where it does make sense to use it, and not in every situation she encounters. Um, you can easily see season one Cora uh, taking a different journey and becoming the person Kuvira is here, mm. um, but thankfully that's not what happened, and and she's able to talk to Kuvira about her experiences and that's ultimately what disarms Kuvira uh, being able to talk to Kuvira is basically talking to an alternate version of herself here as well yeah. uh, Kuvira is talking to the person she could have been and that experience changes her and um, she comes out of the spirit world kind of aware of the crime she's committed and the horror she's committed and is ready to uh, face whatever punishment she, uh, you know, the public thinks she deserves because she understands the weight of what she's done now. I love, there was a one point, I mean, I love the whole thing, but the point where um, Cora's uh, holding up Kavira and trying to um, uh, make sure that she's okay and Kavira's out cold and she comes around and for a fraction of a second she looks... Um, uh, bleary-eyed at Cora in, in almost like like a child yeah and then all of her uh, adult responsibilities come crashing back to her and she flings herself back and says no we're enemies hold on a second and it takes Cora to sort of like bring her back to that no 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 wait a second what were you thinking just there without the aggression without the fear come back to that point it's, it's appropriate that Cora's arc, that this whole long arc completes with a peaceful resolution, mm. breaking a cycle of violence. Mm. Even more so, I mean, even Aang wasn't able to do that. Yeah. That this is a victory that basically Aang had to, had to do something at the time relatively unthinkable. Um, and basically just go right you're, the danger of you must be taken away you cannot be saved, you cannot be changed you cannot be helped, I'm not going to listen to you you've got nothing to say, all you're going to do is a, a attack and kill and he, at the time that really was all he could do I don't think that the, you, he could have got through to the Fire Lord in the way that Korra gets through to Kavira. What it does do as well is show the progression of Korra as an avatar and the, the level of um methods of dealing with things that she's acquired because Unalok she had to destroy Zaire she was able to not destroy but capture and Kuvira actually represents a, a real potential for real rehabilitation there was a um, there was a review of the last episode from I think the AV club that uh, made this really great observation about the conclusion to this episode and I think it ties into what makes the show so like so wonderful and ultimately so incredibly important is that as by the time we get to book four of the Korra series it's basically become an almost entirely female-led story mm. all of the main characters like the big conflicts the big interactions are from female characters with all of the the Beifong family uh, stuff that has to get sorted out and tied up uh, with Cora overcoming her own, like, overcoming the trauma she's been through, her interactions with Asami, with Kuvira. I mean, there are certainly male characters in there as well, but a lot of the really big interactions and conflicts are from female characters. And 
at the end of it all, it, it's an act of sisterhood and compassion that brings the final conflict to a close. And that is so wonderful. And that is so rare in TV or in kids TV and maybe any TV right now. Cue the SpongeBob theme. <laughs> we hate on SpongeBob too much. I think I know. I know. What's a totally worthless cartoon that gets way too much attention? Hmm. Red Eaters. Uncle Red Grandpa. Eaters. <laughs> what? Planet Sheen. I've never heard of these things. Yeah, you're lucky. <laughs> <laughs> it comes from trying like trying to watch every single animated thing that comes out. There's not they're not all that not all of them are good. Yeah. Bread eaters. <laughs> I'm just I'm, whatever I've made up in my head is probably better than it. <laughs> yeah, it probably is. Okay, well, we're not here to hate on other stuff. I'm just, uh, it, it, of course, it saddens me that this is uh, coming to a close now. Uh, of course, I hope that Brian and Mike go on to incredible things and the, the whole team and Studio Mir and the, the, the track team and the voice cast all go on to incredible things and that they can put this on their resume and say, we did this. Yeah, and this is going to be around for a long time. That yeah. I mean, this show is going to be it's remembered, and it's going to inspire people, and it's going to like people are still going to be watching this for a long, long time. And that's not a kind of that's a kind of creative immortality that very few creators will ever achieve. Yeah, this is an ambitious series that tackles big. St- I mean, it tackles stuff like. I mean, even in Mike's own words, the show is about equality and justice and acceptance and tolerance and balancing different worldviews. And it doesn't just pay lip service to that stuff. Like It dives into the complexities of those, of those themes in ways that few kids' shows ever do. And that makes it... I love the Aang series a lot. And at this point, I love the Aang and Korra series pretty much equally. Because yeah. the Korra series may have yeah. stumbled in some more noticeable ways in a couple of seasons. Like, Aang's series was pretty evenly solid throughout. But the high points of the Korra series are so high. And the ambition of what it tries and frequently succeeds in tackling is so great, especially for family programming, that yeah. I am just so thoroughly impressed. I, I can't wait to watch this whole thing, Aang and Korra series, together all the way through again. Oh, God, me too. I think Aang had the benefit of basically starting out good and then just getting better and better and better and better until it just peaked at this incredible point. And you never really felt like it was getting worse at any point. Whereas with Korra, it sort of went up and then down and then up and then up. (laughs) Plus, it wasn't finished. There was always this underlying terror that they could yank it at any minute. Yeah, yeah. It's different, obviously, when you like when you start with uh, last. uh, Obviously, Jerome, you won't get this, but basically, having the last Airbender uh, season one drop through the door and then eating it in a day and going, "Wait, um, um, um," uh, well, obviously, it was more than a day, but it felt (laughs) like it was very short amount of time. Then we'll watch Earth, and then like before you're like even two episodes through Earth, you're ordering fire immediately, and you're like, right. And then you devour the whole thing in the space of just a few weeks. And that experience 
is unparalleled. Whereas with Korra, we've we've had the same journey you had uh, with um, uh, Legend of Aang. Yeah. Mm, yeah, it's actually like that's part of the reason why I waited till like whole seasons were out this time because mm. oh, like right. now I have difficulty watching things episode by episode. I yeah, I, I get too like I want to know what's happened next, so I just wait till a whole season's out and then I watch that. So I do because I find that a more enjoyable experience personally because I don't like the. Well, while it can be enjoyable to have that uh, speculation uh, period between episodes, it's yeah. nice to have it all at once. Yeah, yeah. I, I I appreciate what you're saying. Yeah, like I think there's something to something to be said about being able to appreciate something as a whole mm. rather than just guessing meaning from mm. certain scenes. Like when you, when you see book three and book four together both seasons make so much more sense um, yeah, yeah. than they do separately. Um, and, and they, you know, they, they, I don't know what I'm trying to say, but you, what I, what I'm trying to say that there is, yes, there's absolutely a benefit from being able to see a whole picture rather than pieces of it. Yeah. And, and, and I got to have that with the original series mm. and it's only recently with uh, Cora rewatching the whole thing again, that I've managed to have that and get a great, and like it, having the whole thing has improved some of the weaker episodes of Cora, yeah. like season two, when I first watched it, I, I was really deflated um, yeah, I and that. was really worried about the future of the uh, series. Now, um, now that I've seen book three and book four... You can enjoy Nuck Tuck more. Yeah, I can enjoy Nuck Tuck more. But, like, the, the, <laughs> but the, episodes, the episodes that are really special, like Beginnings Part 1 and Part 2, mm. um, they really shine out now in a way yeah. that they didn't before. And and the, the weaker episodes, like Civil War Part 1, where nothing really happens, <laughs> um, it's, just, they, it's, it's easier to forgive them when you know the direction the show's going to go. I'm just looking forward to almost an entire season of Eska. <laughs> Going back to season two and watching that again in hindsight and, and just making the most of Aubrey Plaza. She's smashing. <clears throat> so, you are from the north, right? Cool, that's like, you know, that's like my favorite direction. I think he is trying to establish some kind of bond with you based on your geographic point of origin. Perhaps it would be interesting to spend time with a person whose ways are so rough and uncultured. You amuse me. I will make you mine. You mean like a boyfriend or, or like a slave? So, I mean, what can we end on? Um, what would you like to see in the future? Like, uh, give me someone give me their absolute ideal. I think we'll all be in agreement that that's an absolute ideal. And then someone give me uh, uh, an absolute worst thing that could possibly happen. And then we'll all go from like, like maybe give us a middle ground for what might happen that could be good. Personally, I would like to see an entirely new series with a new avatar. Who oh, would be uh, Earthbender? Yes. But, uh, yeah, it would be like the 1980s uh, by that point as well, <laughs> uh, in terms with of Walkmans. technology. Yeah. Uh, I'd, I'd love to see that. Like it's a little man a, who lives in a box. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, no, I, I, I would like to see that as well, Sharon. Um, that's the best-case scenario, I think. Yeah, yeah, that's absolutely the best-case scenario. Um, um, Worst-case scenario, M. Night Shyamalan's The Last Airbender, Book 2, Earth. Yeah. 
I, I think I, I feel pretty confident that that, that will never, never ever happen. happen. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's because, the nightmare. Yeah, um, and that's worse than nothing ever attack uh, with the. Uh, no, actually, no. Here's the nightmare: they don't do Earth; they go straight to Korra. He and everyone else involved in that film Korra up as well. Yeah. Um, hopefully, I'm pretty. Yeah, I, I'm pretty sure. After the last incident, uh, that's not gonna, never going to happen. That's never going to happen. I, I think a real possibility, though, is that Nickelodeon would hand over the IP to Cartoon to, Network. Who's out there? Well, no, no. I mean, just a different team of people that are just nowhere near as competent as the team that would have been running the series. Oh, seriously? So just go for like the same license, but different team. Oh, yeah, that, I mean that, could be, that would last for one season, possible. and it would be terrible. Yeah, <laughs> oh, almost distinct possibility. But I think really? that, that's a, that's a real possibility because Nickelodeon still own the. Avatar okay, can like someone thing. cite me precedent on that? I feel like I know where this has happened before. Uh, um, oh, hang on. Um, no, it doesn't really count. They're like Teen Titans Go, everyone seems to hate because it's not as good as Teen Titans. But that was a like, there was a long period in between those two. Yeah, well, that that's a complete that came out of something completely different. Uh, feasible, technically, um, when Marvel took over from uh, uh, sorry, when Disney oh. took over Marvel, they completely screwed the la- the second season of um, Earth's Mightiest Heroes to the point where the culmination of that like, Galactus is like. All heroes assemble. Let's attack Galactus. Well, that was the end by... Really? Um, really? That's spe- it? <laughs> spectacular Spider-Man 2. Um, what's going on right now? Ultimates. The oh. Ultimate Spider-Man series. Yeah, technically it's the same license, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. So I suppose they could like like reboot it and go like... Wacky Avatar action. Like the Chibi... Oh. Do you remember the Chibi Avatar like minis? Yeah. Like all yeah. that. Oh God! Um, basically, explain the Teen Titans things. That's exactly what happened. Oh yeah, it went from like standard, straightforward with a bit of comedy to chibi. Chibi. Yeah. But yeah. it's like Josh says, like that's the most plausible nightmare situation we have. I mean, I it's don't di- think they'll it's, ever it's, give it to him now. It's Samalon. It's different for Spider-Man because obviously he had loads of cartoons before yeah. that, and he's got loads of comics and movies and action figures and all that stuff. And basically, at the moment, Korra and uh, Ang are these like this two. I mean, near perfect s- series yeah. that form a, um, a saga, I suppose. Yeah. I suppose this is kind of like them doing more Lord of the Rings films, but them not being handled by Weta, but being handled by a really cheap ass. Like, give them to Akiva Goldsman <laughs> to write and direct. He directed A Winter's Tale last year. Remember that? Oh, exactly. Yes. No. <laughs> he also wrote Batman Forever. So, yeah. yeah. Anyway, we're going all over the place. Obviously, a terrible live-action film could happen. Josh, you don't you don't think it could even really or should even really work in live-action, do you? I I'm not I'm not saying it it shouldn't ever be in live-action and uh, it wouldn't work in live-action. It's just more that the reason one of the key reasons why I love the, these two shows so much mm. is the animation yeah, and. Yeah. 
um, I would love to see this team of people with the budget of a movie yeah. and make an animated movie because I mean it's it's movie it's beyond movie quality. We've all seen movies that don't yeah. look anywhere near as good as this. You just like, stick this digitally on a cinema screen, everyone's jaws will hit the floor. Yeah, but but that, that's what I mean. When you consider what Studio Mir can do with a million a million dollars. Imagine what they can do with one hundred million. One hundred like, million dollars. <laughs> like ha- having so much more resources and so much more time to make a free hour, not a free hour. Like free hour. It's a, <laughs> God, I, I, I'm being a bit. Uh, uh, ninety minute. Yeah, ninety minute film. Maybe a hundred like, minutes. But can you imagine what they could do? Like it, we've seen what they can do with a, a restricted budget. What yeah. if you remove the what if you remove those restrictions? Yeah. You just allow them to do whatever they want. Like Jesus. that sounds incredible. You just get Adina Menzel in there singing a song, and suddenly you got box office gold. <laughs> <sighs> I. We've talked before about the uh, the adult stigma for uh, animation. I I'd love to see that happen. I also know that if they got uh, true, if they really hit the world with a truly excellent like guardians of the galaxy level comedy action film basically we wouldn't be the only people in the world who know who toff Beifong is and things would be better even toff herself would agree with that i think maybe maybe not she's I, like it's better off when people didn't know who i was i i, I do think that um and I, I've seen it already, in fact. So the word of mouth around Cora over the years will get more people watching the show mm. and watching the original series. Because all the conversations about um, same-sex relationships that were occurring after the finale of Cora has gotten a lot of people who would have never watched Cora watching Cora. And, and, and I've been really happy to see people go wow this isn't what i expected um this is actually really mature and adult material i'm going to keep watching this and it and that's re- that's really uplifted me seeing that over uh, over the past week since the finale aired yeah i could see smaller productions in other media of this universe continuing i could see more comics happening very yeah. easily oh yeah there'll be comics for for yeah. a good long while i can even if we don't end up getting another true like uh, avatar like entering the avatar series for a while i will be very curious to see what mike and brian move on to do yeah uh, like next yeah because i'd just be very interested in seeing that but i do get the feeling that the word of mouth on this is going to keep it alive and going to keep people talking about it and eventually in some way there is going to be an attempt to bring it back and given the way Nickel, uh, given the way Nickelodeon's handled the series so far, I don't know. I mean, it could always happen that they could try to do another one, but then hand it over to other people. I don't know why they would do that, and I don't think. And I think even they would have to realize that would be a poor choice. But I could see, I don't know, the, given that our current environment of reboots and and uh, trying to bring back franchises that still have word of mouth that people still talk about, I can't imagine that 10 years down the line, someone isn't going to try to bring Avatar back. Yeah. See, I feel, 
I think I feel exactly how I felt at the end of of uh, Ang. Like, yeah, it would be great if they continued more, but I'm perfectly fine with this never continuing again. Yeah. I, I, I have to say, yeah, I, I kind of get where you're coming from. I, I'm content with what mm, we yeah. have here. Yeah. And I, I, I'm, I'm not saying that I, I don't want to see any more. I, I, if somebody announces, hey, Mike and Brian, they've gotten another chance to do Avatar, the new Avatar set in the 80s. Oh, that's amazing. I, I'd be just as excited as everyone else. But... We got closure for two series. Yeah. Do you yep. know how many great TV shows don't get closure? It's not like Firefly, which never really got the chance and exists as potential in everyone's heads. Yeah. It's, it's fulfilled that potential. Yeah. But like, I, I think of, you know, like Deadwood was cancelled after three seasons. And although we got a sort of closure with season three, it didn't feel like it ended for me. And well, I mean, the real life Deadwood didn't end, so yeah, yeah, technically, no, no, no. it's kind of accurate. No, no, no I, justice. No, I, I mean, <laughs> and then nothing I, bad ever happened to Deadwood again. <laughs> but I mean, what, what I mean I know what is, you mean, sorry. yeah, yeah, narrative closure, not necessarily the end of the stories of those of characters. Course. I just yeah, you but it's so easy and fun. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I sympathise, Josh, if that helps. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, I, I'm just, yeah, I'm thankful that we have two great TV shows because, yeah. yeah, that rarely happens. It rarely happens. Okay. Well, folks, if if there's more, you can bet your elements that we will be covering it at some stage in some form. Uh, Team Avatar may return. Thank you very much, folks. Uh, do you guys all want to uh, plug your various shows and projects? Uh, start with Jerome. Um, yep, you can find me over at Game Burst. Uh, we do a two, twice weekly show. Sunday we've got news, and Thursday it's a roundtable replay or a quiz. Yeah, <laughs> a quiz. Yeah, almost forgot there. <laughs> um, okay. Unfortunately. I th- I'm not quite sure what our next upcoming show is, but I think it might be uh, Unplugged. Uh, so uh, Unplugged's where we do focus on board games, so you can look forward to that. Joshua? Uh, you can find me over at caneandrince.com, uh, where you will find a podcast where we take a game or a series of games and dissect them and analyze, analyze them in detail. Um, you'll also find loads of videos and articles on the website as well. Um, I am also involved in the YouTube channel, The Animation Archives, where I put up analysis of uh, animated films and animated TV shows. And Daniel? Uh, you can find me on YouTube on the Extra Credits channel. We have several shows there. Uh, Extra Credits, our main one, is a weekly series where we talk about uh, game design, the game industry, uh, games as a artistic medium, how games can be made better in both a practical and uh, just in a larger medium cultural sense. Uh, we also have some other side shows like uh, our writer James recommending some interesting smaller games. Uh, a show called Design Club, where we really dig into the game design of a very specific chunks and pieces of gameplay in a specific game. And also our newest uh, series is called Extra History, which is uh, unrelated to all of that game stuff, where we just uh, every other week and soon possibly every week 
uh, depending on how our Patreon goes, <laughs> we uh, <laughs> we uh, basically dig into a small little chunk of uh, world history, which, which has been going on for a few months. Speaking of Patreons, uh, I'm going to plug a new century, which uh, by this by the time you hear this, the new podcast should now be out. So you can download the first few episodes of that to listen to right now. The Patreon now supports both New Century and Digital Drift. So if you want to give something back for all that entertainment, you can jump on the Patreon and get early access to both shows and all kinds of extra bonus behind-the-scenes goodies into the bargain. And of course, not only do you get something for that, the shows get stronger. Thank you, folks. We'll see you next week with Daniel Floyd for Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, the first of the Disney podcasts. Thank you.